0: Hello, I'm Juliette Littman. And I am Joe House. Welcome to Ringer Food, the Ringer's new hub for all your food-related content. You may have known this feed as House of Carbs, and don't worry, that's not totally going away. We will be launching two new shows on the feed, and the first is Food News with me and David Jacoby. You may remember us from our days at Grantland while Jacoby and I are back to go over the news, sample snacks, share some personal tales of food news, some global tales of food news, Who knows what else is to come? And House, what are you going to be doing? Oh, my taste
1: buds, my hungry homies, my culinary comrades. We are back. We've done it. Here to tell you that we are reigniting House of Carbs with a whole new slate of tasty episodes throughout the year. We are starting with a football fracas, a gridiron gobble fest. We're doing NFL playoff potluck featuring taste tests of the iconic food item or items of every playoff city to determine which city reigns supreme.
0: The Ringer food is starting up this Wednesday, January 12th. That's so soon. So be sure to subscribe on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The rewatchables is brought to you by the Ringer podcast network, where you can find the Ringerverse with Mallory Rubin. What's it, What's your What's your special show called? The House of R. House of R. House of R. <laughs> Sean Fantasy. You can find him on the Big Picture as well. And we are embarking on a five week special series, gimmick series, stunt series. Uh, it is fucked up family February. No better way to start <laughs> than with the Oscar winner, Ordinary People, guys. I think I know why I came here. I came here (laughs) to talk about myself. Ordinary People is next.
2: In this typical town, in this comfortable home, three ordinary people are about to live an extraordinary story. Donald Sutherland, Mary Tyler Moore, Judd Hirsch, Timothy Hutton in an extraordinary story of ordinary people.
1: All right, Ordinary People came out in nineteen eighty. Nominated for six Oscars in 1981, won four of them, including for Best Picture and Best Director. Polarizing movie in some ways to the movie creator community, Uh, a movie that still holds up, and much to my surprise, found out from Mally Rubin, one of her favorite movies of all time, if not number one. (laughs) Why is that, Mally Rubin?
0: One of my favorites. One of my favorites of all time, no matter how many times I watch it, I feel that way, which I guess is the spirit of this exercise (laughs) here on the Rewatchables podcast. I- I don't know. I think it's a combination of how absolutely mesmerizing all of the performances are. I think it's phenomenally directed. Everything about it, from that first piano key until the final sequence panning away, feels like it could be only about this one family and about any family anywhere in the world at any point in time if you tap into the central themes, right? And the themes at the heart of the story. It's not ultimately about the house that they live in or where they are in Lake Forest or any of those trappings of wealth or anything else. It's about loss. It's about grief. It's about sorrow. It's about guilt and shame and how these things that should unite the people closest to each other ultimately fracture them and tear them apart, right? It like makes you think of the old Anna Karenina line, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way, the way that it is like very specific and universal control, compassion, growth, trust, and what is interesting, interested in examining. I just think it is beautiful and deeply, deeply poignant. I watched it for the first time when I was in eleventh grade in high school, and I watched it four times in a row that same weekend.
1: Wow! So <laughs> fucked up family, February. There's a certain type of movie. And it's weird to think like this movie would be a rewatchable, but I do think it is. And the other ones that we're going to do, I think are all rewatchable in their own way. And this movie, I think, is the probably the gold standard. It, it succeeded, I think, the most, and it hit the zeitgeist in the biggest way, but still has some some important fucked up family themes that we'll get to. But Sean, I could go one of two ways with my first question. I'm going to go here. Okay. Do you consider this the movie that invented the modern indie movie?
3: I I don't, but I know exactly what you mean by that question. I don't because the movie was greenlit by Paramount and actually went over the heads of David Katzenberg and Michael Eisner running Paramount yep. straight up to Barry Diller, who is a major corporate titan in the history of Hollywood. So th- there's not anything independent about it, but... Obviously, Robert Redford is the founder of the Sundance Institute, and he has the Sundance Film Festival has come to have a very clear identity in the history of independent movies and tense family dramas and coming of age stories are a huge part of the lineage of Sundance. So I think what you see is that Robert Redford is really interested in stories about families that don't know how to communicate. And that's really like what's at the heart of this story. And you can see it not just in this movie, but in the way that he has built an entire world of independent cinema and the people who curate that festival and the filmmakers who are constantly inspired by movies like Ordinary People. But from like a practical Hollywood perspective, I'd say it's actually the opposite. It's actually I see this movie as like a bridge movie because and I'm sorry for rambling a little bit here, but I thought about this a lot. Heaven's Gate is the movie that is often considered in 1980, like the end of the new Hollywood, right? That was like a big bloated production that was way too expensive. And Michael Cimino's, you know, his ambition got way out of control. And all this greatness that we saw from Scorsese and Coppola and Lucas and all these incredible filmmakers in the 70s kind of culminates in this big failure. Two months before that, Ordinary People comes out, which is a lean family drama that is a, a like inherently conservative kind of a film. That like culminates in the end of the me decade and movies and particularly prestige movies, they get a little bit more kind of constrained and a little bit more prestigious. This is also famously the movie that beat Raging Bull, you know, Robert Redford. <laughs> were, yeah, we're right? getting to that. You know, Hold so like, that part. Take <laughs> yeah. all, if you take all that into consideration, yeah. it's such a critical turning point movie in in the history of Hollywood. So it's a, it, not to mention all the stuff Mallory said, which is like it's a touching movie. And it's, yeah. it's it's interesting to revisit at this stage of my
1: life. So there's so much to pull apart here. The indie movie thing. I think what it paved the way for was people who saw this and thought, "I can make a movie like this, and I don't need Mary Tyler Moore and Donald Sutherland. Mm-hmm. I can do this. Like the the relationships between people, where all I need is a house, or all I need is a school, or whatever, and I can just find good actors, and I can do this. Like there's no way that Soderbergh with sex Lies, and videotape didn't have ordinary people like in the in the very back of his head like I could do that I don't need famous people but in 1980 you needed famous people to to make this stuff Mallory the fucked up family movie <laughs> I mean look all of our families are a little fucked up right I'm still I'm still waiting to meet the person who's got I I've, I've actually met probably two people in my life who was like hey that family seems pretty normal who are they um, every, CR's I don't want to say them but I don't want to blow their heads up Okay. What I'll, One of them is my friend Rob Stone. He just had like the nicest, most normal family. And we'd be, I'd be like, wow, is this family's like out of happy days? What's going on here?
3: All that means is there's definitely like some sort of dungeon in their house. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Rob Stone. Uh, Mallory, why do we love fucked up family movies?
0: For exactly the reason you just said. Even if the specifics, the context or the circumstances are not something that you can relate to. In the slightest, there is a through line of just like the human experience with family dynamics and more broadly with the connections that you seek to build. And also the introspective nature of the film, I think, in particular. It's not just about the way that you lose or build trust with other people, it's about the way you lose and build it back with yourself, which I think is really central to why it is so, so impactful because those things are, of course, entwined. Like, one of the things I love about revisiting it is that sequence at the beginning, very early in the film, when Beth and Cal go to the play. And the lines that are showcased from that play are so deliberately chosen, of course, right? Like, to know someone that well is a wonderful thing. That's one of the lines we hear. And one of the central propositions of the movie is interrogating, like, what happens when you stop when that stops being true for you. What happens when you stop knowing the people who are supposed to be closest to you in your life? What happens when you stop knowing yourself? And then all like all the way to a bookend line at the end like Cal sitting outside chilly saying or saying to to Beth in their in their breakup when the rift becomes decisive in the dining room table sequence refilmed after the fact, right? Yeah. We would have been all right if there hadn't been any mess. And people are drawn to that idea because that's true for everyone, but there's always mess. Always for everybody. It just manifests in different ways.
1: Redford, so the the benefit of having me as a director is you get the incredible casting. I do think it's like the chef thing where the chefs know who the other good chefs are. I do I do think there's some instincts that actors have with other actors that they can see a couple different ways, right? So he sees the Mary Tyler Moore thing. Mary Tyler Moore is Unreal. the most famous tv star of the 70s basically male or female i would Bar say none. she yeah. she probably is male or female the biggest one um and is america's sweetheart and is absolutely beloved and watching her play um basically the most evil mom who's ever been captured on film. I'm trying I'm trying to, I, I it, don't know is who the other though. candidates are. It,
3: it, can we find empathy for her? Give in the this kid this a hug, Mary Tyler Moore. <laughs> Give
1: him a fucking hug. It's your son. Yeah. Uh, if she, they should have spun off her and Neil's dad from dead poet society it would have been like the perfect movie, <laughs> but, but Redford's doing this, but at the same time, like Pauline Kale in the famous review that you sent us last night, Sean, that there, there's a lot of Pauline Kale stuff. We'll get into later. And Pauline Kale's the biggest critic in the world at that point. And she's basically like, this is a fucking TV movie. What are we doing? Savage. Um, Brutal line. Yeah. Redford, he's not (laughs) direct. Like he's good, he's good with actors, but is he directing? Like, is there is this movie trying to be visual in any way, shape, or form? But that's not why I don't think the three of us respect and love this movie. It's the acting, it's the performances. It's it's there's just all everybody's lights out. And that's what I think is special about this movie. The top six, even Elizabeth McGovern, lights out. All of them are perfect. So, uh, what else do you see from Redford as a director? Because he never really approached this again.
3: I think it's an interesting example of casting being seventy percent of the job. And yeah. the cast, he got a couple of breaks here. The Mary Tyler Moore thing—that was his call. He was like, "I saw, I read this book. I saw her one day, and I just standing saw, on a
0: beach yes. like alone.
1: <laughs> yeah, like shit, like seeming un. It's seeming sad, and he it's was amazing. surprised by that, and that was, yeah.
0: That's one of the great details in that Entertainment Weekly oral history.
3: <laughs> and if you if you watch the movie, and you don't know very much about Mary Tyler Moore, let's say you're 20 years old, and that you're just seeing it in the context of, <laughs> this is just a family drama. And we've seen hundreds of family dramas in the 40 years since this movie was made. You might think this is fairly pedestrian, and you might think what Pauline Kael wrote makes sense, because formally... Robert Redford is not a visionary filmmaker. He does not like block his scenes fantastically. And there are plenty of filmmakers who make movies like this who are incredibly gifted. Mike Nichols makes movies like this and they they feel it feels like you're on a roller coaster sometimes. They're really exciting watching. Watch Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? It's, it's extraordinary what he does with the camera in that movie. Redford, I don't know if he's not capable of it or he doesn't care, but what he does do is he identifies the right people. Mary Tyler Moore is right here. Donald Sutherland could have been in one part, but let's put him in the other part. Judd Hirsch, I saw him on TV one time. What about him? Oh, Timothy Hutton. He's only been in one TV movie. He's right for this movie. All of that stuff comes together to make what could have been mediocre or a little bit obvious and raises the stakes on it. Now, I think it's fair to say is that as impressive an achievement as Raging Bull, it
1: for me it's not. (laughs)
3: But that doesn't mean ordinary Ordinary people is not a great movie because I think
1: in many ways it is a great movie. The TV movie thing is. It seems like such a put down, but I'm older than you guys. There was a run there, the ABC After School special, which basically was from my entire childhood all the way through the eighties. And so you'd have those, but then you would also have ABC or NBC or CBS. We only had the three networks. They would have TV movies and they would try to do things like this, right? It would be totally over the top. It would be like, Shirley mclean has got a drinking problem tonight on CBS. And, <laughs> and where's my bottle? And those would be the movies. So I think that's what she meant with this. I think I can see the TV. Like, it it, it hurts because there's just enough truth in it. Like, yeah, she's right. This could have been a TV movie. But I think that's insulting to the actors. I think everybody is so great in this movie. I, I actually, she, there's some stuff with her and Redford that we'll talk about later. Yeah. Um, but, all right, Mallory, Timothy Hutton.
0: Ah. Uh, yeah. Incredible performance. I mean his first movie wins the Oscar for best supporting actor at 20 years old. I'm sure we'll we'll chat later in the half-assed internet research and elsewhere about some of the stuff that Redford and Hutton and other members of the production have shared about the way that Redford yeah. chose to like ice out Hutton on set so that he would feel that sense of isolation that is really embedded in the character. But, you know, my favorite thing, I'll spoil it, my favorite thing about the movie, and this will recur across many of my rewatchable scene selections, as tremendous as I think Mary Tyler Moore and Donald Sutherland are, my favorite part of the movie is, is the, scene, the, the scenes between Hutton and Hirsch. I mean, they're just incredible, all of them. And the way that they build across the movie so that when you get to the payoff of the climactic scene, which we'll talk about shortly. Don't you let go. Like, you feel like you were there, <laughs> and for every second of every one of those sessions with them. But then you also have the moments at the swim meet, or Conrad talking about that, saying his own name out loud time and time again. Right? What a dumb name! As he's trying to like muster up the courage to call a girl. I think that he captures like the emotional heft that's necessary for that performance and frankly the movie to work with with Conrad as the central figure but also has this like charm and this youthful exuberance paired with this sorrow that is just like a really really difficult blend for anyone no matter how seasoned to pull off and the fact that he was able to do this in his first movie is like extraordinary.
1: Yeah, and you think there's been a lot of stuff written about that class of actors and even like I've ha- I've done podcasts with a couple of them where he was the first one that hits out of that whole generation. Sean Penn is right there with him. Sean Penn ends up dating Elizabeth McGovern. Sean Penn probably couldn't have been in this movie. I think one of the things with Timothy Hutton that's so perfect about it is he just seems like a kid that would have grown up in this Illinois suburb. Sean Penn brings a danger to it. Cruz, I think, would have tried too hard. Cruz is another guy in here. Emilio Estevez is in here. Rob Lowe is like just too handsome. You you wouldn't believe that that he would you would just would have thought his looks would have saved him. Hutton was like perfect, and all those guys say like that was the one they pointed to. Like oh, they knew they were all for the same editions. Oh, Tim Hutton, that was the guy we all want to be like Tim Hutton. And then what's weird is he be- basically became the Vince Carter of this generation, where he peaks really early, and then these other guys all go flying by him. But this became. His uh, his defining part, depending on how you feel about beautiful girls, I th- you know he did win the Oscar for this. But Sean, that generation, I la- it reminds me honestly of the NBA. I remember saying that to Rob Lowe. It reminds me of seeing like the mid eighties NBA stars where, and they all knew each other. They all lived in California. They were all auditioning for the same things, and Hutton became the alpha.
3: Well, it's funny too because they. They work together a lot too, you know. Uh, one year later, we get Taps, and we see Sean Penn and Tim Hutton toe to toe. We get and the Falcon in the Snowman, we get, and Cruise. We get the Outsiders a few years later. We get Rumblefish. We get all these movies, and then obviously the John Hughes movies. So we start to see how all these people kind of interact with each other. Hutton, I think, is probably the most credible, real seeming person out of that whole cadre of actors. You know, like you mean Emilio. like in a movie like this? Yeah, like he yeah. he just seemed like a high school kid. And part of it is because you've never seen him before and you don't really have a relationship to him when he comes in this movie. It's impossible to look at Tom Cruise and not just be like, that person is a human tractor beam. Like he just draws you in no matter what. So it would just, it wouldn't be believable that Tom Cruise would be struggling at this stage of his life. Whereas with Hutton, it's like there are scenes in this movie where it looks like he hasn't slept in four days and he is rung out and hasn't eaten a sandwich in three weeks. And he looks like shit. And he like he's really going through something in a very, very believable way. It's a very, it's a really, really skilled performance for such a young dude.
1: The beginning, the first 15 minutes of the movie, I was going to do this on Edge the best we can do it now. When you could just feel the weight of everything that's happened to this guy and you don't know what it is yet. You have an idea, but these subtle things like he won't eat. He's they cut in the room and he's just lying on his bed. He's not doing anything. He's almost like he's dead on the bed. And then somebody knocks and he jumps up and pretends he's reading a book and he's got those big purple bags under his eyes and he just looks a little off. And now you think, especially like during the pandemic, how attuned people are to mental illness and all the signs. And But we didn't have that stuff back then. We didn't have that stuff in the nineties either, you know, and it really, I didn't, not that much in the two thousands. I, I think it was a relatively recent thing, mostly driven by social media and the internet about look at these signs, this, that. So I think that was one of the reasons this movie hit so hard because depression was a really taboo thing to talk about. It was like a sign of weakness. Right. And that was why Judith was a Judith guest.
3: Mm -hmm. That was the novel. That was, that was
1: how she started writing the book. She was like, I became really fascinated by depression. What makes somebody depressed? How do they work out of depression? And she ends up writing the book, but Mal, like if you did this movie now, I, I I think you would have to do it completely differently because everybody would be, first of all, you wouldn't shame the guy for going to a therapist, right? The mom would never react like that. Think everyone around him would know like, oh, something's wrong with him. But I, I think that's one of the cool things about this movie. It's stuck in this certain era where we didn't recognize any of the signs.
0: Yeah, it's, An interesting thing with the story in general and certainly with the mental health aspects of it where some of it feels like so tethered to the moment in time. The novel is written in 76. Obviously, the film came out. 80. Certain parts of it, I think feel like very much of that time, the way the swim coach talks to Conrad. Everything from Beth's perspective. as you just asking about
1: electrotherapy. Yeah. So what do they do? They electrocute your head?
0: It's appalling, right? Incredible. Emmett
1: Walsh.
3: Emmett Walsh is the greatest, (laughs) though. Oh, my God. Undefeated character actor. He is
0: unbelievable. Even at the time, though, like, you were supposed to be appalled in the face of that, right? I think now part of it is that we see that and think, oh, my God, like, how horrific. That's just not the way that anybody should speak or think or behave. Whereas at the time that dichotomy inside of the film is presented so that the other aspects of it that are more progressive, right, the way that Conrad and Dr. Berger ultimately break through and bond or the way that Cal is able to say, hey, this is something that I see the value in. And that, that's an evolution for him over the course of the film to the point where right. he seeks out his own session and tries to get Beth to go there with the family. So I, I was I'm glad you mentioned the book, though. I was curious to ask, have either of you read the novel? no. No. I had never, never read it, and I, I don't really have a good explanation as to why, because as you know, I love to like visit the source text, and I love to read the story. I have that- a hard
1: time with the books after seeing the movie. I, my brain just can't wrap my head around the book. Because I see the characters, yes. and then if they veer in a direction that's not from the movie, I'm just like i just discombobulated. Exact same bill. I have the same thing.
0: I think that's why for this one I never sought it out because as as drawn as I typically am to reading the text, this movie is like so embedded in Amber in my mind. It's just this like this thing that exists as it is and is unchanging, right? Yeah. I started reading the book for the first time this week because oh. of the pod, and I'm I'm not very very far in, but I. I think I'm far enough to say that this is not going to change. And I wanted to mention it because it's fascinating. The perspective of the narration shifts, but only, but between Cal and Conrad, I read, Beth, I read
3: about this. Yeah. Wow.
0: Which is fascinating because we're, we're seeing her at th- her decisions, the way that she conducts herself through their eyes. And so you get this access to the way they are respectively mourning and adapting, but she is someone we're viewing like through a lens. And I think the way that they, that, that, that specific energy like ported over to the film is, is pretty sublime.
3: And if it, it works, she talked to Judith guest, talked about this, that she wanted what motivates Beth ultimately to be ambiguous, that like, she is on, on its face, kind of a hateable character. You know, like you said, Bill, like, is this one of the worst mothers we've ever seen in a movie? What could possibly make a woman be so unfeeling towards her son who is in so much pain? On the other hand, they give us like little moments where you're like, oh, this is how you were raised. Or you don't realize that there is something wrong with the way that you've framed your life. But the other thing, too, when you were talking about that earlier, Bill, about around mental health that I think is really important in this movie is I think it's one of the first movies in which therapy is narrativized and dramatized and not like a joke in a Woody Allen movie. This is yeah. not some like bourgeois convention that like people do in comedies to talk about how their relationship sucks. It's like this guy went through one of the most traumatic things you can experience and he needs help and there's a way to get help. And here's a way to get it. And like, look at yeah. goodwill hunting 20 years later. Like there there is no goodwill hunting without ordinary people where you can see that that relationship between Will and Sean is like such an essential part of that story And this movie, I think, does a lot of work to basically make this normal for for people.
1: Well, you know, back then, I think if you go look, if you go look at like box office mojo for how many movies actually came out every year, it's way less than you think. It's like 100. It's like 110. Yep. And a lot of times these movies would tap into these themes that then would become talking points for pieces and TV shows for like literally weeks. And I remember that happening with ordinary people. Like the, the the depression angle from this movie became like a real talking point for a lot of people because nobody had seen the therapy piece in a movie like this before. And then the therapy, and so you're talking talk shows where depression's one thing, therapy and and people. It was like with uh, with Rocky when Rocky comes out in 1976, and people start jogging. <laughs> like there's there's a direct line of people like i'm gonna go work out and you just see people running and you would be like what the fuck is that person doing and it, and it was partly because that movie so i do i do wonder if like the therapy thing this movie was huge this movie made almost 100 million dollars and it was pretty famous sean we gotta talk about the redford piece okay? okay so and i've talked about this before in the pod but when i was growing up like the biggest stars in the world were Robert Redford, Paul Newman, Burt Reynolds, Clint Eastwood. And that was it. Those were the – they levitated above everybody else. And Redford especially, um, you know, he's in – starting from Butch all the way through. He's just felt so famous. But now he's directing a movie. Mm -hmm. And Warren Beatty, a couple people had crossed this line successfully, but not really. And there was – I don't want to say an antipathy for people who did this, but kind of in the industry, a little bit of distrust. Like, stay Skepticism, in your, stay in your yeah. lane. Yeah, yeah, stay in your lane, actor. Um, but not only did he pull it off, you could argue that by the end of 1980, he's the most powerful actor or actress in the world, right?
3: Yeah, I think there's a case for it. I mean, he's not necessarily... I mean, Clint Eastwood, Burt Reynolds, Paul Newman, there's a short list of people who are like kind of in command. The thing with him is... He was always very visionary about his career and how he wanted to manage his career. And the way that he picked parts in the 60s and 70s is very indicative of the way that he organized his career in the 80s and 90s. It's funny because he's like he's definitely not the best actor turned filmmaker, even though he has one best picture and best director. He's not really in the top five, I think. I think there's a, pe- a lot of people who are ahead of him. But he was very savvy. The one thing that's in that Pauline Kael review which I think is on point. And when you look at his career and the films that he's directed, she really put her finger on something here, which is that she identifies that a lot of actors who turn filmmakers always take on these really serious projects that have like this emotional weight or these social issues that they want to address as almost like an apology for giving us so much fun in their acting career. You know, it's like, sorry, I, I wasted your time with all of this frivolous material. Here's what I'm really about. Here's what i George Clooney is somebody who did that thing. recently, he's, right? Yes, he's done that many times in the past. A lot of actors do this. And I mean, Angelina Jolie has done this with some of the films that she's made that she's uh, as, a, as a filmmaker. Affleck does the same thing. But, there is this sense that like, when you become a director, the fun stops and the important work begins. And I don't really like that. I, 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 I blanch at that. I, I don't blanch necessarily at like Quiz Show, which is another movie that he made that I think is an awesome
0: love movie. I love that movie. <laughs> I but love movie. Quiz Show.
3: <laughs> but if you look at like the Milagro Beanfield War or Lions for Lambs, these very like issue oriented movies. Lions for Lambs is bad. He's taking himself too seriously. And and that can happen when when you have been so successful for so long in one category, and you're like, now I'm going to conquer this other category.
1: What's uh? I have some Pauline Kale quotes from you for that review. Okay. okay. Movie stars who become directors sometimes seem to choose their material as a penance for the frivolous good times they've given us. Paul Newman made Rachel, Rachel, and now Robert Redford has made Ordinary People, which is full of autumn leaves and wintry emotions. It's fucking sketch. She was the fucking goat. She is uh, such a great writer. Such a great writer. Um, another piece. You're consistently ahead of the storytelling the way you almost always are when you watch a prestigious TV movie, which this really is. <laughs> 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 fucking brutal. <laughs> this is the kind oh, of movie in which the mother keeps the dead boy's room intact. A shrine that probably has its own cleaning lady. And then this is the last one. Talk about Mary Tyler Moore. As this wasp witch... Whose face is so tense you expect it to crack. Mary Tyler Moore also seems to be doing penance for having given audiences a good time. The fault is just in her acting. It's also in the writing and the directing. She's been made into a voodoo doll stuck full of pins. She didn't really like this movie. Oh, my God. Um, (laughs) But it's a a good point about, like, Robert Redford wasn't going to make, like, Midnight Run. No. It's going to be movies like this because that's the movie that they feel like they have to make. But I also wonder, like, what actors have turned into directors where they've had the visual thing in the right way? Where they, you know, the only like kind of visual moment in this whole movie is when they go bowling and Elizabeth, you see the bowling ball and then Elizabeth McGovern's head peers over it. It's like, whoa, that was cool. It's all right, that's it. We're not gonna do that again. Um, but are there are there actors that have been able that have the eye? that like some of the directors that we've had on this podcast that we've discussed that just can see things in that kind of way it, to I, me, it's two different skill sets.
3: Yeah. I mean, there, there are like, obviously like Charlie Chaplin is one of those, you right. know what I mean? right. like he knew how to do that. Um, There are not not a ton. I think you know Ron Howard was an actor. I don't know if he's like Visual Majesty is what he's best known for, but he is someone who made that transition. I think Ben Affleck. Yeah, his movies,
1: his movies have a feel. Same with Affleck. I I think Affleck Affleck has has
3: style. He definitely has style as a filmmaker. Um, I I, honestly, Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson is a very very good director Mm -hmm. of images, and he's obviously persona non grata for a lot of reasons in in the world of Hollywood right now. But both. Uh, I mean, Passion of the Christ and Apocalypto are like pretty visually accomplished movies.
1: Apocalypto's is cool.
3: Yeah. yeah. So, but it, you're right. It's very uh, it's very uncommon. I'm gonna bring Van
1: Lathan in for one second. Why, Mel, Why? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Van. Shout out to Van. Uh, Mallory, where does Redford just out of curiosity rank on the handsome actor rankings for you?
0: Is oh, he just I mean, like he's, he's
1: like a one seed? Where Where is he?
0: Well, I think on the list of like objectively handsome actors he's probably like a universal one seed right yeah like him and Brad Pitt pers- in the finals I mean, yeah I think so right I mean like my personal top five is gonna be like a little weirder <laughs> you know like I'm <laughs> I've got like Rafe Fiennes is my all-time number one you know
1: because <laughs> it's funny they do the Oscars which I watched and Redford goes up for best director And he's just at like the apex of his handsomeness. And he's just like fucking handsome guy walks up. He's wearing a tux. It looks like he came out of a GQ magazine and just gives this off the cuff speech and he's also an actor, and it's like, wow, this is just way better than the normal uh, best director's speech. But
0: It's incredible. I mean, he's at his peak, right? Like, this is just a yeah. few years after All the President's Men. It's a few years before The Natural. Like, what a run in all respects. Well, I, Electric I was,
1: Horseman is the year before, which is basically eight, seven, Robert nine. Redford in a cowboy hat. We don't have a plot. He's just going to ride around <laughs> I love and that be movie. handsome. Says no. Yeah. 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 Were,
0: were you both struck by the visual resemblance between the actor who played Bucky and Redford? Like was he cast Uh, because he bears a striking (laughs) physical resemblance to Robert Redford?
3: (laughs) Amazing call, amazing call. I couldn't,
0: I couldn't unsee it once I realized it, and it was only this watch that it struck me. I think because I had just watched the Oscar acceptance speech,
3: and and Redford, of course, the Golden Boy, his entire
0: life, haircut. Uh, Yeah,
1: Yeah. and Bucky is the Golden Boy. That's so good. Well, he's also a dick, and we're gonna get to that later. Um, Wow, gonna take a break, and then I have, um, the staples of signature fucked up family movie plots. And we'll do that next. Great. All right. So I think these are the staples. You know, you're watching a fucked up family movie. When we could call these the F (laughs) U F. Some of this is grim. I'm just going to, I'm just going to like, this will not be a social media breakout. I'm sorry. But
3: are we going to get to psychologically interrogate why you wanted to do these movies, though? I feel like that's an important part of this.
1: Maybe we can wait. Yeah, till we'll the end. we'll do that right after. Yeah. Okay. But it's like accidental death is a, is a key one, right? Yep. Okay. If some somebody dying and one of the characters living with the guilt, either it was their fault or they were there. It's one or the other. One of those things. Suicide is, or attempted suicide is always like, what happened? Did something happen to this person? Um, horrific parenting, I think counts. Yeah. I think that's in like just fundamental part of this. An abomination of a parent. I think the, the mom and Kramer's versus Kramer being the, uh, the best example. She fucking ditches the kid. Infidelity is a great one. Mm -hmm. And then infidelity could go one of two ways in a movie where the other person knows about the infidelity or they found out. And when they find out, do they do something or they don't do something? And then there's some darker ones where, you know, like child abuse and the the super dark ones. But those are really the staples, right? There's always has to be some sort of trigger. It can't just be, here's this weird family. They don't really get along. There has to be something happen that they have to unravel, some sort of dark secret or some sort of actionable thing to point to. Like, oh, this guy, oh, he's fucking his secretary. Oh, now- you know what I mean? What What am I missing? Are there any other touch points, Sean? I think there's
3: one other key thing, which is the sense that no one's really saying what they mean. In all mm. of these movies, it takes a long time for the blow up to happen. Um, and in all the movies that you've picked for this theme, which I think is brilliant, there is this sense that no one can really get off their chest how they feel about what's going on in their life and in their family. And there's a reason, like I, uh, effectively repression. That is like a, a signature. Of repression.
1: That's, I got to add that. Repression's a good one. What's that movie that we love, uh, In the Bedroom?
3: Oh God. Yeah. That's a, that's a really dark one. Wait, that's that, like a, in the, that's it, like a. Th- not Little Children, right? You're thinking of In the Bedroom? In the Bedroom. Okay. in the bedroom. Tom yeah. Wilkinson. Yeah. Yes, exactly.
1: That's like a 3.0 version of Ordinary People. Not, not rewatchable. Not sitting down and cranking that one out once a year.
3: It's amazing though.
1: I, it's amazing. That's Marissa our guy. Our guy yeah. did that. Todd Field, yeah,
3: Todd, who who is really carrying the legacy of fucked up family February with with little children and 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 in the bedroom as his two directed features.
1: Todd Field's not in season one. He's not in season one of fucked up family February. But 2023, we're, we're already eyeing some <laughs> of his movies. Might just be a Todd Field festival. <laughs> did, did I tell you he has a movie this year? His yeah, first,
3: his first movie since Little Children is later this year. Mallory, what else are we missing?
0: I was going to say the exact same thing Sean did, which was this, like, compulsion to put on a facade, to to forge and craft some sort of mask. And I think it can manifest in a couple different ways. Sometimes the characters don't realize they're doing that, and that's what makes it interesting, right? That would be the, the repression. And sometimes I think, like, really with a character like Beth, there's an activeness to the way that she is working to fabricate this perception you know the way that she conducts herself at the party dear god not the murray's <laughs> <I> love that <laughs> line from cal so funny you know going over to interrupt him and it's all smile and cheer and it is just so false right and yeah she has to put on that air in front of other people and then get in the car and say it is a very private matter so i think that's a that's a through line for sure
1: I also think it helps if a kid's involved. It does, It's not a staple. It doesn't always have to be in there. But if there's, because I, I think as, when, as movie viewers, we're always more protective of teenagers and kids in a movie, right? And if we feel like they're being disserviced in some way by the dysfunction, then we become even more attached to whatever is happening. I think this is a good example, right? This kid, we don't know what happened. We know it was bad. We know there's a room that hasn't been touched, so we figure somebody's the brother's probably dead. Um, I'm stunned by how many movies shamelessly ripped off this movie in different ways. Like The Sure Thing has the fucking room, right? Good Will Hunting, the therapy scenes almost to a T of like how they become closer and closer to the final scene and the breakthrough and the hug. It's basically the only thing we're missing. Good Will Hunting had the one last scene where they see each other again. This one doesn't. Mm -hmm. We don't see Judd Hershigan after that, but over and over again, I feel like people have have kind of just taken things from this movie. It's been very influential. There's no doubt about it. Um, okay. Let's talk about the Oscars.
3: <laughs>
1: Jesus Whew. Christ. So Redford, he directs this movie. He said he was producing things I was acting in, but I had never directed. I felt like it was his time. I was looking for a piece of material that was about behavior and feelings. Maybe that's a fucked up family staple. Mm. When I read Judith Guest's book, I thought this is it. So he was right. Nominated for six Oscars, it won four. Best picture, best director, best adapted screenplay, Alvid Sargent, best supporting actor, Hutton. Everybody's nominated except Donald Sutherland. Ex- yeah. Which is an absolute fucking travesty. And I I don't, I don't have that it. I don't have that ranked highly enough on my Oscar Travesty list because I actually think. He has the key performance in the movie. Um, everybody else is doing what they're doing. But if if he if he doesn't work, I feel like the movie falls apart. I think you could have had other people play the Hutton part and not been as good. And I think the movie still works. But if Sutherland doesn't work in that role, or if I'm not buying it, like we'll talk about like Gene Hackman was almost in that part. Like I, I don't, I don't think Gene Hackman would have been good in that part. I don't know if I would have bought that. So somehow he's not. Nominated. Sean shaking his head. It's insane.
3: I also don't, I don't know if I understand it. I I don't know if I've ever done it more of a one eighty on a character since having a kid than than Cal. Really? Because <laughs> I used to be like Cal, get your shit together, man. Just tell your wife what you're really thinking and step it up. You know, like stop re- retreating to your son's bedroom to try to make a connection that you are you can't forge. But now I'm like, I totally get this. I told because all you care about is just your kid being safe and okay, and everything else takes second place to that. And your relationship is your relationship, and you'll figure it out when you can figure it out. But your kid is, like, it's urgent that your kid be safe. And Sutherland doesn't usually play parts like this. He doesn't play these, like, deeply emotional, like, men in crisis. You know, he plays, like, elusive and funny and weird guys. And so this was, like, a change of pace for him. And the fact that he's not recognized is so fucking weird. And it's also just wrong that Tim Hutton isn't supporting actor. He should be in Best Supporting Actor, and Cal should be, or he should be an actor, and Cal should be in Supporting Actor. What is he in almost every scene? Yeah, he's in twice as much of the movie as Mary Tyler Moore, who wins Best Actress,
1: right? Or no, she got nominated. for for Best Actress. Excuse me. Yeah, it's tough. Well, with the Sutherland thing, so I love Six Degrees of Separation. I think I'm higher in that movie than you guys are, but um, he's basically playing that guy. This guy. (laughs) Calvin 14 years later in Six Degrees of Separation. It's the same thing. He's kind of living a lie with his wife, and at the end, she flips it on him. But um, for the most part, yeah, the, he's usually like Invasion of the Body Snatchers or the bad guy in some movie. But this is definitely the most interesting movie that he's yeah, been or, in. And or or MASH
3: or Animal House. Or, you know, think about yeah, those comedies. movies that made, him, fa- yeah. Yeah, the movies that made yeah. him famous, too. It's it's a very strange thing. I mean, it, it, he would have been entering into a, a, a very challenging um field tim hutton and yeah. best actor and that might have been part of the reason why he ran and best supporting actor because robert de niro was in raging bull that year and that's not easy let alone john hurt and the elephant man which is like one of the most celebrated performances ever in movies so
1: tough sutherland thoughts mal
0: I, I was hoping, honestly, that you two could explain to me the absence of the nomination here because it's so baffling. I think of like a line in the film, like Conrad saying to his father, Everything's jello and pudding with you, Dad. You don't see things. And how, like, actually, the almost entire movie hinges on proving that that's not true, you know? Right? It's not just jello and pudding with Cal. He does see things. And so, you know, not to like. Step on most rewatchable scenes, but when he gets home from his session with Burger, and you know, we have the The unbelievable and you were worried about what I wore on my feet exchange, which is like genuinely iconic and an all timer. The payoff comes from the real sincere character arc and evolution that we've seen over the course of the film. I just think he's it's one of the more like overlooked and underrated performances. I mean, maybe in part just because the other ones are so celebrated and like, there's only so much air in the room and, you know, only so much time you could spend like gushing about the performances in the movie. But I don't know. It's just like, honestly sad. Imagine being the one left out (laughs) when you were that central to the film.
1: It had Goldman always used to, he used to call it the rain man, Tom Cruise thing where the key performance of the movie people just missed that it. it was the key performance because there's so much else going on. They don't realize like this person was actually the anchor of the movie. I don't know. That's a really interesting list. That'd be a fun big picture topic at some point. Like the yeah. The anchor, the unseen anchors of movies. And I to me, Sutherland is the anchor of this.
3: But the big difference between a lot of those great parts that you're talking about in this one in particular is the when you walk out of the movie, it's Sutherland who has the home run final moment. You know, it's it's Hutton turning to him and saying, I love you, dad. And Sutherland's got tears in his eyes and they hug and then the camera pulls back and you're like, okay, so this is a story about a father and a son ultimately finding a way to be together in the face of this evil mom or this this uncaring mother. So it's funny that like, to your point, Mal, it's still kind of confounding that audiences didn't walk out of the movie and go, oh, Donald Sutherland, one of our great actors.
1: I don't think he had the gravitas. I really think... I think the way the Oscars worked back then, they were super douchey and super elitist. and As opposed I to just, now? <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Now at least they're more self-conscious about it. So this leads to, I mean, one of the most legendary Oscars we've ever had.
3: Yeah. Big one. Yeah,
1: It gets, it gets postponed because Reagan gets shot night of, for some reason, the Oscars and the NCAA title game, which was Indiana against, I think, I can't remember Louisville. Um, Both are on the same night against each other. I don't know what what the hell they were thinking with that. Both get postponed. This would have been a
3: nightmare for 1980 Ringer. Oh, my God.
1: (laughs) 1980 Ringer would have been going nuts. So we have, you know, it's funny. I was watching some of the YouTube clips, and I was trying to think, like, could, this had to have been one of the top four Oscars. It's like Johnny Carson at his peak. Mm Mm-hmm. It's Redford versus Raging Bull, and Redford winning, and then the actor Redford going up there and then coming back out for Best Film, and the the Best Actress is absolutely loaded, and the films were, I think, pretty good that year. But um, but what became the legacy was this robbed, uh, Scorsese, and I think as the years have passed, people have held that against ordinary people as a movie because. Yeah. Right. This was Scorsese's moment, and then he's chasing it ever since, and we finally get it with The Departed. But, Sean, do you believe in that sometimes with legacies of movies where, like, a weird Oscar result? Because we talked about the Forrest Gump. That happened with Forrest Gump, too.
3: Yeah. I mean, Quentin is still chasing the best picture thing and hasn't gotten it, even though he should have gotten it probably three or four times. And just yeah. like Scorsese, probably should have gotten it three or four times from 1976 through 2006 before he gets it for The Departed. Um, it's a it's a it's a very good year for movies. It's a very interesting slate of nominees. Just to give you a sense of like how important the movies were in the culture at this time, Norman Jewison, the legendary movie director, actually produced this telecast. A guy who made wow. in the heat of the night produced the telecast for this, in addition <laughs> wow. to Johnny Carson hosting it, who of course was the most famous person on TV in the 1970s and early. So it's
1: 80s. like fi- like 50 million easy. Yeah, easy.
3: Yeah. A- and So, And it's an interesting test, I think, of that thing I was talking about before, which is, like, the 70s are coming to an end. What were the 70s about? Were they about family drama and emotionality and reckoning with what is unspoken in our life? Or they about, like, the violence that is underneath all that? Ordinary People is the safe version of a similar story. Raging Bull is about people who are bursting at the seams and they actually burst. Ordinary People is about people who are bursting at the seams and they're trying to hold it together. And... So it's this interesting comparison point. I mean, the other thing too is like basically David Lynch arrives on the national consciousness with Elephant Man and goes on to become one of the most important directors of the 80s and 90s. And he doesn't really make any other movies that are like the Elephant Man. But the fact that he got recognized at such a young age by the Academy makes this like a really, it's, a, it's an unusually compelling slate. And even though the Oscars are seeming like a little fussy, Martin Scorsese and David Lynch are pretty out there. And Robert Redford is, he's the home team. You know, he's one of the most bankable movie stars in Hollywood. So it's not shocking that a lot of the energy went in his direction.
1: Mal, I'm going to give you a couple other movies from 1980. Okay. That did not join us in the Oscars.
0: <laughs> oh, okay.
1: Movie you might have heard of called The Shining.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Man. Yeah. Yeah. That's Kubrick. a tough one to leave out.
1: Kubrick, <laughs> shut out. <laughs> Nicholson, thanks anyway. We we could have had, for best actor, we could have had De Niro, Duvall, and Nicholson. We covered this when we did the rewatchables, when we did The Shining. But right. Duvall gives the best performance of his career in Great Santini and just draws the all-time short straw going against the best performance of De Niro's career. Right. And uh I think Duvall probably wins, what, seven out of 10 other years?
3: They had to make it up to him with tender mercies like five years later and give it to him then.
1: And then Sean mentioned John Hurt as the alpha man. The alpha man was a thing. It really was. Like It's hard to explain now. It's black and white. It's fucking weird. But it was a real thing in the moment. I remember my family took me to see it. I've never been more bored in my life. I was like 10. I was like... Well, it's like what happened to when we went to Caddyshack. That was that that was so much more fun than this fucking thing. Uh, it's not a fun Pete, movie. And then you had Peter O'Toole and the stunt man, mm. which is like a really famous, important Peter O'Toole thing, where it was like people thought he was done and he wasn't. And then Jack Lemon got the fifth spot for tribute. So never
3: never seen that. Have you seen tribute?
1: I don't even know what it was.
3: I, I that that occasionally you'll be looking. I'll be looking back at old Oscars results, and there'll always be one performance from a major actor where I'm like, "What is that?" And maybe it's because it just wasn't at Blockbuster or wasn't on HBO in 1992. But that's a movie that like has not a very big cultural reputation right now, and edged out Jack Nicholson in The Shining.
1: That and and <laughs> Timothy Hutton or Donald Sutherland for best actor. That would be the worst spinoff podcast ever. Would be. <laughs> Just <laughs> movies that we, we don't understand how they ended up in yeah. the uh, the unfindables. Yeah, yeah, the unfindables. We also had this year. We had uh, there was some some blues brothers with Caddyshack, Friday the Thirteenth. Um, we Incredible had Xanadu, American Gigolo, which is just Incredible. an amazing movie and with a very good LA movie by the Great way. Movie. Um, yeah, so it was it was a lively year, but no Nicholson.
0: To the point you guys were were discussing a few minutes ago about, like, do people hold the fact that Ordinary People beat out those movies against it? Just anecdotally, I... As mentioned, this is one of my favorite movies. I had never watched this with my husband. We've been together for a very long time. Somehow never watched it together. And I said, well, you watch it with me (laughs) to prep for the pod. Won't that be lovely? (laughs) Turns out it wasn't. What could go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) And we had a couple passionate debates after. But the thing that he would not let go of and that I was so frustrated by because I said, you're not making a point about the movie. He just kept bringing up Raging Bull and Elephant Man. He just kept bringing it up. He couldn't stop mentioning it. And he's just like, it's absurd. It's absurd that this movie... One Best Picture over Raging Bull. It's absurd that Redford won Best Director over Scorsese. And I was unable to break through and ask him to think about the film on its own merits instead of thinking about it that way. We then segued into a fascinating exchange about which of us is the Beth and which of us is the Calvin in our oh, marriage. Boy. That's
1: not going to go well. Just danger
3: zone.
0: I'll just say if you're if you're a couple that has that conversation you're both the Beth. That's where I landed at the end of it.
3: <laughs> That's great. I watched this movie by myself. I just want to put
1: that out there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hutton beat out Judd Hirsch. Uh, he beat that, out Michael, Michael O'Keefe in the Great Santini, who's amazing.
3: Good. Yeah, that's a good one.
1: He beat out Joe Pesci in Raging Bull and then mm. Jason Robards and Melvin and Howard, who played Howard Hughes. He's actually good in that. That's movie. a very good I'm one. I'm down as well. with that. Yeah. The um Cici Spacek one, she beat Mary Tyler Moore. She also beat Goldie Hawn in Private Benjamin. That movie's awesome, and she's awesome. Ellen Burstyn and Gina Rollins and Gloria. Yeah. So that category was loaded too. This is honestly one of the best Oscars yeah. we've had. The best supporting actress wasn't great. Uh, Ordinary people, six point two million dollar budget, made ninety million. Roger Ebert, our guy, four stars.
0: He loved it, as Roger you know. He lo-
1: he loves plot, story, and characters this is the key to his heart. <laughs> It's not often we get characters who face these kind of challenges on the screen, nor directors who seek them out. Ordinary People is an intelligent, perceptive, and deeply moving film. He's right. Raj, our guy. He's correct. Uh, most rewatchable scene. It's weird. I, I don't know really how to handle Fucked Up Family February with the rewatchable scene, so it's like this is lot. almost like best scene.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Beth in the dead son's room gets me. Like That fucking door opens, and she's in there, and she's just sitting there with that I don't know how to describe that look on. And we're looking at the trophies and whatever. And then Conrad comes in, and she gets mad at him just because he's – And then they have the most awkward conversation, oh my god, probably ever trig, in a movie. Trig
0: conversation. Trig, yeah. did I
1: take trig? I don't. She's moving the plant. He's. Oh my god. I got seventy four on a trig quiz. Seventy four. Yeah,
2: I was awful at trig.
1: Oh yeah. Did
2: you? You you took trig. Wait a minute. Did I take Trig? I, th- <laughs> I bought you two shirts. they on your bed.
3: It, it, honestly, like, it, their relationship strains credulity for me at times. Where I'm like, I don't know how you could ever get to a place where you have this relationship to one of your children, but yeah. that's just a testament to how good she is in the movie and how effective she is at, like, Continuous, continually distancing herself from him that being said the rewatchable part of this this episode is so challenging because, like, I would not fire up that episode, that that scene on YouTube. You know what I mean? I wouldn't be like, yeah. "Oh yeah, I haven't I haven't revisited that one in a while." When but yeah, if you is, stumbled
0: upon it, you would sit down to watch because it's gripping, right? That's true. Like, it's gripping, and the yeah. so maybe it's it, some,
1: maybe it's the most gripping scene, not most rewatchable scene. Maybe that we should tweak it for fucked up family February. Which scene
0: held on? You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which scene held on? I think like the 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 quality of that like museum like preservation of Buck's room, and then seeing the way that Beth sits inside of it. And then seeing the way that she and Conrad can just not find a way to interact. And he's actually trying, really trying, yeah. you know, talking about how, oh, like swimming the 50 and the grade on the the, the trig test, right? And it's, it, 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 we might as well have maintained that museum quality because it's like he's talking to like a statue right he just cannot the only real emotion and the only thing that we get out of her is when she tells him to not like sit on the hutch right don't sit on the furniture like that's the most uh, animated thing that she does in that entire sequence and it's just devastating and you know but wait that then- the
1: h- the hutch thing is so important because she doesn't even really say it right she does this like it's a gesture this fuck you wave like get you know, where it's just so, it's even worse than if she said, hey, honey, get off the hutch.
0: I, it's I, more, I totally she's al- almost
1: like he's a dog.
0: Well, the dog the dog will come up later. You know, we get the, the, r- the rough, rough, like dog, like a little football thing. But I love mm. that scene too, because it builds toward an important follow-up moment. Actually, that that very dog conversation when she does like make some effort. It's when she sees him outside later without the, I'm not picking this as a rewatchable scene. I just think it's connected to the power of, of the, the trig exchange because it's like so anguish inducing to see that this (laughs) one effort just fizzles out so quickly. And what makes it it's as soon as he mentions Buck she just shuts down completely right like they're not able to break through the, the 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 grief that should be shared and a bridge but is ultimately just like a chasm between them it's it's devastating
1: mm. next one most most gripping scene, not most rewatchable scene. <laughs> the party scene is awesome with Beth with her fake party personality. Unreal. Calvin on the staircase thinking about taking a crack at maybe one of the other ladies or whatever. There, there's like a little ice storm kind of feel yeah. for about three minutes there. This, this is me at the Grayland holiday parties over the years. <laughs> yeah, just on the staircase. <laughs> uh, Everything's then, great. I promise. Everything's great. And then he starts talking to that lady and he's like, yeah, Calvin, he's seen a doctor twice a week. and.
2: Is he still having some problems? Oh, no, 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 nothing like that. No, 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 just somebody to talk to, that's all. Just kind of polish off the rough edges, that's all. How you doing, darling? Is he falling asleep on you yet? Nah. No, he's great.
1: Mary Tyler Moore, she just perks up, and it, it's it's... Like Naked Gun, like when uh, when they're playing the the signal to make Reggie Jackson take the gun on, her. like she just perks up and you just know, like, oh my god, he made Beth mad. You're actually scared of Beth. She and becomes also, a horror movie villain. Then that at that point,
3: it's it's like Austin Reeves is being double teamed and LeBron sees it in the corner, you know, and he just he's <laughs> just like, shit, I got to do something about this immediately, <laughs> oh you god. know.
1: <laughs> Leading to the car ride, you drink too much at parties, Calvin. Incredible it's brutal, scene. incredible, brutal. Scene.
0: Do we, are we, are we nominating those as a shared scene, the party and then the car ride? Like they're, they're. Yeah, they're, they're together. Right? Yeah, they're yeah, they're together. I love uh, that party scene so much because, it, you know, despite all of the prior comments about the direction, it is one of the more like nimbly directed scenes where, you know, you're weaving and bobbing in and out of all of these exchanges between people that are just like absurd, right? Like Bob McLean's leaving goals and Johnson. Where's he going? He doesn't know. Jesus, oh you know, and like <laughs> mundane <laughs> things that occupy all of these people's time. Like when you pan back for a second and think about it, it's like, well, what are all of their stories? Right. They're all of the ordinary people, too, who have something extraordinary, probably unfolding beyond the walls of their home. And mm. we just don't know. The thing that I love in the car ride so much, though, I mean, I think that's one of the iconic lines. Like, I think it is a very private matter. I mean, that's like. That's one of the lines you think of when you think of the movie.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. Well, maybe we should have called this most dysfunctional scene. <laughs> this next one is an all timer. I don't know where it ranks in the Pantheon. Maybe after the fifth pod we'll it like to me, like the Rachel's getting married, the uh
0: mm-hmm. yeah. the rehearsal
1: dinner when they're all giving speeches. And then Rachel finally decides to give a speech is the most uncomfortable I think I've ever been in a theater. This group picture when family they're taking photos. the yeah. the family photos. Amazing. Oh, my God. And, no, no, I'll get a picture of you guys. No, 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 I really want to take a photo of the guys. No, no, let's just do what I can't get the camera. And, oh, my God. Give her the goddamn camera. <laughs> Come on, give me the
2: camera. Dad, give her the camera. I want a really good picture of the two of you, okay? No, but I really want to get a shot of the three of you men. Hey, give me the camera, Calvin. Not please. until I get a picture of the two of you. Cal. Hang on a second. Give her the goddamn camera.
0: It's painful to watch. It <laughs> uh, really it's is. painful
1: to talk about. Let's just move
0: on. I can't hold <laughs> <handle it. laughs> um, That is a great one.
1: <laughs> well, this one isn't uplifting either. Beth finds out Conrad quit the swim team. Oh, my God. And, oh, and it, it
0: escalates... Talk about one where you're genuinely afraid.
1: Yeah. A goddamn
0: thing. And I know
3: why she never came to the hospital. She's busy going to goddamn Spain and, and goddamn Portugal.
2: Why should she care if I'm hung up by the balls out there? Maybe this is how they sit around and talk at the hospital, but we're not at the hospital now. You never came to the hospital. How oh, do you know the didn't come to the hospital? Now, you know that she did. She had the flu, and, and she couldn't come inside, but she came yeah, to the well, hospital. Yeah, well, she wouldn't have had any flu if Buck was in the hospital. She would have come if Buck was in the hospital. Buck never would have been in the hospital. That's enough. That is enough.
1: I won't do it again. I really won't do it. What in hell has happened? And then she has the hammer with, Buck never would have been in the hospital. It's like,
0: oh. oh my God, send,
3: send her horrible. straight to prison after that Oh my moment. God. That's yeah, that awful.
0: was a crime. That is one of the cruelest moments in in film. It, it really is. I mean, that is just.
3: This kid is six weeks out from trying to take his own life. I mean, this is, what the fuck is wrong with her?
1: Yeah, she, would, so that's when you realize like, Oh, she's mad at him because the suicide embarrassed her with, with her life that she has. This, yeah. is, this is actually what this is exactly. about. She's embarrassed by him.
0: Well, and it's like a really, really smartly structured scene, too, because that's embedded in the impetus for it in the first place, right? She was embarrassed in front of her friend because this was brought up, the fact that Connor had to quit the swim team and 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 she didn't know, right? Like that's the thing that she cares about, not what might have happened. In his life, what might be going on with him, how he might be feeling that would have led him to make that decision in the first place. That is not a, that is not a factor in her equation. She is genuinely uninterested in why he might have done that. Only cares about the way it makes her look in this social circle that she's trying to maintain. And part of the reason when you try to look at Beth as... A tragic figure instead of like a pure villain that you can say, all right, well, she is it possible to find our way to empathy? Is like a later line in the food, you know, the food court at the mall when she's like, I, I don't, we, we've had enough change, like, stop trying to change me, I don't want anymore. Yeah, like she's just so desperately trying to hold on to any of the familiar moorings in her life, but like at what cost? Right, at the cost of, and we learn here too, we get actually crucial canon in this scene. We learn that she didn't go to the hospital at all, right? And he was there for four months. She didn't go. She had the flu. For four months? No, she went to Europe, we learned. Like, that is savage. That is a level of betrayal that is almost unfathomable. It's, it's hard, really hard to work your way back toward a more, like, empathetic view of the character after this scene in particular.
3: Here's the thing. In addition to Mary Tyler Moore being one of the most beloved people on TV for going on, what, 20 years after the Dick Van Dyke show. Yeah. Most actors in mainstream prestige theatrical movies would with her credibility would not allow themselves to be a character who's this unlikable and even now when you look at like this movie is probably most influential now not just on those indie movies at sundance that you're talking about bill but like on prestige television you find a lot a lot of shows that you find on like hbo max for example that are kind of you know that are chewing on some of this stuff but very rarely will you even encounter a character who would do something like this on that show
1: like, the, right, big little lies. Reese will have the affair with the teacher, and but but you're never gonna actually think she's she's Mus- st- Mussolini, she's
3: still empathetic, you know. With yeah. the Mary time the more character it's like, wow, you're this is evil, like, you might be responsible for your kid trying to kill himself again. Yeah, that's that, that's and that is that's very upsetting, honestly, to think about. Plus, her hair,
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> uh. Well, it gets it gets a lot more fun in the garage <laughs> oh After uh, after our guy Don Sutherland I call him Don Comes back from a uh, first <laughs> therapist visit I guess I was here to talk about myself Oh, really? That's <laughs> is your expert analysis? And then she's like, hey, where were you? Hey, can we talk about Buck's funeral? What? Calvin, what's the matter
2: with you? Let me get it off my chest, okay? What could getting dressed for Buck's funeral possibly have to do with anything right now? I was wearing a blue shirt. And you said wear a white shirt and the other shoes. And it was nothing at the time. It always seemed to stay with me. And I've for some reason been thinking about it and it suddenly occurred to me, what difference did it make what I wore to Buck's funeral? Just hear me out, Beth. It won't hurt you to listen. I won't listen to that. No one in their right mind would listen to I that. I just want to talk about something that I always remember. Why do you want to remind me of it? Because I've always wondered in some needling way
1: what it mattered, what I wore. She's just frozen in the doorway and it's super awkward. She does give him the hug at the end. My wife pointed out, uh, at least at least he got like a half-hearted hug out of it. But goddamn, the garage is tough. Mallory loves this
0: scene. I'll just spoil that this is, I think, in my top two. It's (laughs) this is just unbelievable. And as is the case, I think this is like a theme and a through line. Many of these back to back scenes are really like embedded into each other. And so you have a moment in the conversation between Cal and Dr. Berger where he says they were the only two that didn't cry at the funeral, you know about Beth and Conrad and it's like wow what a for different reasons certainly but what a what a fascinating thing to learn and think about and then that builds and you know propels us toward this exchange and Beth is so often defined by the way she is trying to manufacture or approximate this sense of like false composure right and so yeah. we've seen a ton of emotion from Conrad and a lot of conversations with Conrad and Berger about feeling and when you can feel and when you can't and what that feeling means. But there's something just so impactful about seeing how broken Calvin is in this moment, the way he can't bring himself to even get out of the car until she kind of compels him to, right? And I don't know. I just think that the, the actual lines of dialogue and the delivery and the performance from him in the scene are some of the most memorable lines in the movie. Like... <laughs> It suddenly occurred to me what difference did it make what I wore to Buck's funeral. And I mean, the hammer line, like I was having, I was crazy that day we were going to our son's funeral and you were worried about what I wore on my feet. It's just unreal. And there are like all these other little layers to it. Like we have that amazing sequence earlier in the movie where Conrad and the John Boy sequence – which I would also throw into the mix is talking to Dr. Berger about like he's recalling the way his father's foot was on its side. He thought it was going to crack off and like the yeah. tension that builds up in your body. And like, I don't know. It's just I, I find this. I think if we're uh, in a safe space for sharing <laughs> and trust and transparency, I think one of the reasons I find this scene most impactful is because if I'm honest with myself, I'm like, man, I can, honest, I could see myself doing that. Like, I could see myself in a situation of true despair focusing on something as completely inessential and mundane as, like, what you were Mm. wearing on your feet, right? Because, and I think, again, that's one of the ways where as, like, cruel and awful as it is to know that that was what Beth was worried about and talking about with her husband when they were burying their child, it's also one of those ways that you can try to, like, understand her. Because she's just she's just reaching for anything she can to try to stay afloat, I, I, yeah. I love that scene. It's incredible
1: couple more first date scene with Elizabeth McGovern. Mm. Mm-hmm. Conrad describing depression is fucking amazing. yeah it was like falling into a hole it keeps getting bigger and bigger, and you can't escape all of a sudden it's inside and you're the hole. you're trapped like the way he puts that, yeah and it's An amazing scene, and all of a sudden, these jackasses come into the restaurant and they ruin the moment. And she doesn't know how to handle it because she's a kid. And um, everything about that, I think, this is really well written. Very, Um, very sensitive portrayal of depression.
3: That whole sequence, you know, the way that he is like distancing himself from her in the car afterwards, like really kind of amazing and subtle.
0: It's not the point of that scene, but I also always love the God exchange. I don't believe in God, not at all. No, well, it's not a question of degree. Either you do or you don't. Right, I just love that.
1: The big scene. Why did you let go? We'll get back to yes. Two more. The golf scene.
0: <sighs> Another Alzheimer. Uh,
1: a yeah. very very severe marital argument on a golf course. Honestly, is my wheelhouse. Like if that <laughs> if that was a YouTube channel, I would be the first subscriber. <laughs> it's just perfect. It's such. Golf is such a happy place. You're outside. There's trees. There's grass. It's just everybody has a specific demeanor. So if anyone is arguing about anything, it feels like ten times more of an argument. Hmm. So to watch a couple just go at it like that, I I can't. It's just it's really well.
3: Done. This sounds like it could be the parent corner of Fairway Rolling. You know, like marital <laughs> yeah. meltdown on the on the 18th green. That's a, that's that's yeah.
1: beautiful stuff. Well, as you know, one of my theories for a happy marriage is don't play golf or tennis with your wife or husband. I think it's just if you stick with that, you're good to go. I've broken that Um, rule a couple of times. But then (laughs) Beth gets madder and madder and then finally says to poor Ward, who's just like, hey, it's great to have you guys down here in Texas. We got to get a stake in you. Meanwhile, Mary Tyler Moore hasn't eaten in like probably a year before this movie. We We got to get a stake in you, Mary Tyler Moore. (laughs) We got to get more guys named Ward as well. Yeah, What what happened to
3: guys being named Ward?
0: Hold on. You're a couple seasons behind, clearly, on modern day classic Outer Banks.
1: Word Cameron. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, <laughs> Ward Cameron is in there. Sorry, Sean. Have not seen you uh, missing out. a millisecond You
0: are missing out. Talk okay, about okay. fucked up families. Check out Outer Banks. <laughs> <laughs> my goodness. Woo. Yeah, that well, line do, from Beth to Ward is just. I
1: do have to tell you guys one thing. You better make sure your kids are good and safe, that they haven't fallen off a horse, <laughs> been hit by a car, drowned in that swimming pool you're so
0: proud of. Oh, my God. Poor Ward. He's like, why am I getting hit by bullets? <laughs> and then you come <laughs> I, to me and tell me how to be happy.
1: Brutal, brutal. Unbelievable. I think that's My favorite golf fight ever in any yeah. scene,
0: right? Like that's the the hammer line and then you can come to me and tell me how to be happy, but the real key actually is a couple lines prior when she says I cannot respond when someone says, "Here, I just did this great thing, love me." Like that's the most honest she is in the entire movie. Mm. She's actually not capable of that level of connection.
1: Have true or false. You've said that to Adam at some point in your life. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I love love. I love to love and encourage Yeah, you are. People. You
1: are. You do love love. Uh, last one, the, the post-Frozen hug breakup scene, which as Mallory pointed out earlier, they had to refilm. We'll get into the mechanics and half fast internet research, yeah. which actually is fully asked. Um, we would have been all right if there hadn't been any mess. We would have been all right if there
2: hadn't been any mess. But you can't handle me. You need everything neat and easy i don't know maybe you can't love anybody it was so much buck and buck died it was as if you buried all your love with him and i don't understand that i just don't
1: know i don't at least calvin figured it out She can't handle mess get out of there calvin you're still young (laughs) This
3: is actually the exact same thing I say to the baby when she wakes up in the middle of the night. You know, everything would have been fine, but you can't handle mess. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: All right. So, those are all the scenes. But let's go back to the big scene. Why did you let go? Uh, Hutton and Hirsch. It's unbelievable. He finds out his friend from the hospital is dead, melts down, runs, calls, end up at the office, and uh, we get the flashback. We finally find out what happened. And that wasn't fair, was
2: it? No. And then you say, hang on, hang on. And then you let go. Why'd you let go? Because
3: I got tired.
2: Yeah. Well,
3: screw you, you jerk.
1: It's like, honestly, one of the best seven minute scenes in a drama, I think. And probably the reason this movie won the Oscar.
3: Can I just say that? I feel like the scene between them that precedes this is like sets it up amazingly well. You know, like the, you know, the, that exchange where he's like, when I let myself feel all I feel is lousy and Berger says, excuse me, I never promised you a rose garden. And it leads to that yeah. exchange where Khan is like, what do I think? I think you married a fat lady and you go home and you fuck the living daylights out of her. Yeah. And Berger's yeah. like, sounds good to me. And you're like, <laughs> right. you see them like <laughs> forming this bond where he trusts him to lose his shit. You know, like it's very carefully done that it it makes that that explosion at the end feel more authentic. It doesn't feel like it just came out of nowhere. Like they've been building towards this.
0: I I think that's one of the most essential elements of the movie's success because that's true really from the very first session with them. And it feels like such an evolution over the course of the movie. Like I I would throw even the the very first exchange that they have into the mix because partially for what you're identifying, Sean, the way that it then enhances what comes later. Like just think about the way Conrad... Physically is in that scene, right? Keeps his jacket on, keeps his backpack on. He's like so jittery; he can't get comfortable. He can't get, he can't get a sense of just like peace, right? And that man, yeah, you're right. His, his
1: physicality is really good in the whole movie. Like he's constantly kind of moving because shifting. you, bi- yeah,
0: yeah, you build toward like a middle sequence because they have. So, I mean, they have so many scenes together. You build toward one like the, that John Boy exchange where. His hair's gotten longer and he's sitting in the lounge chair, right? And he's, his legs are hanging over the edge. And it's like they are just lit, like in a different place, right, with each other. And Conrad is in a different place with himself. And like when he says there's, there's a version of the movie where like Conrad saying, you know, I don't know what I would what I would have done if you hadn't been here, like doesn't. Land or doesn't work, or like Doctor yeah. Berger saying, because I'm your friend, like just feels too maybe like saccharine as a a final note. And I think that despite uh, all of the the, the well earned praise that you know we've put on the the final couple, Calvin and Beth and Calvin and Conrad scenes, the I hung on scene is really like the culmination of the movie. Like the movie could okay. end there. You you the coda is effective, but you you really conclude the film in in that climax. And it's just like astonishingly acted, edited, directed. I think that I was curious to ask you guys, especially in light of everything you said about the directing, how much of like the way that this, this scene in particular, this is true across the movie, but this, this scene in particular cuts between the timelines, right? Cuts between what we're seeing from Conrad and Conrad and Berger in the moment. And then cutting back to the boat, Cal finding conrad in the bathroom us seeing beth watch them put her son into the ambulance all of that how much of that is directing how much of that is the film editing how much of that is just the structure of the screenplay because it is like electric in this sequence i think it is just mesmerizing
1: pretty oh. ahead of its time too for 1980 i don't i don't and think the there's a lot of movies score, doing that whew. yeah not, now i think they would do it better but
3: I I actually don't like that part of it. If I'm being really? honest with you, yeah. let's,
1: let's hear it.
0: Why? Well, because I liked
3: it. I think Why, the Pauline? Movie, the movie sets it up very well because when we see those flashes, they're pro- coming primarily in dream settings. T- Tim Hutton's character wakes up a handful of times when he's having he's experiencing these flashbacks to Buck, and then in that sequence between him and Hirsch at the end, where it's flashing back, he's he's awake. He's just talking and telling a story. And so it's just an oh, like,
1: unreliable narrator. It, it, it,
3: but it's it's not even more so, it's just like it's holding the viewer's hand. Like we need to be able to see his brother lose his grip to make that scene feel more powerful. And like I I just I just felt like I didn't need it. Like I felt like we had seen kind of snatches of it previously in the movie. And we felt like to me, I was like, I just want to be with with with. Burger and with con like that. I don't. Pauline need-
1: fantasy coming in. hot. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I I see what you mean. I my counter is it's really effective when the kid disappears into the water. It, it is the oh, brother.
0: Man. Yeah, and then it's when just you see, like, oh my pull god, himself back up, and it's like the whole thing hinges on that moment. But I think Sean, I would I would challenge the dream point just a bit because I do think we see it a lot when he's awake previously. Like even something like when he when they're driving to school, good old lazy me. And you know the, he's at the train track, right? And that triggers like his PTSD. Or we get it from from Cal from Cal's perspective too, like his memory, his recollection of the boys arguing over the mm-hmm. sweater or something, like right? Like there, there are. I think that is like fairly consistent in terms of like a narrative structure throughout the film. But regardless, I'm a sucker for it here. I think it is so powerful and poignant and affecting. Well, do, you, do you guys have a favorite line? There are so many good lines in this stretch. Like it is just. Hammer line after hammerline from both Hirsch and Hutton. I mean, Hirsch is amazing in this scene, amazing,
1: Matt, you were stronger.
0: <laughs> I love that one. Did it ever occur to you that you might have been stronger? and like it's it's it works so well because it's clear that's that it, actually it hasn't. the key
1: that's the key line of the whole movie, and that's the part that uh our guy Conrad never really considers. like he's the one that held on,
0: yeah, the guilt, the guilt for having survived and also the anger that he finally allows himself to express here like the anger that these characters bear toward each other is so central to the story right the anger that Conrad feels for, for toward Bucky for letting go of the anger yeah. that Beth feels toward Conrad etc and the way that the characters across the movie talk about who can't forgive whom and like you see something like Dr. Berger's eyes go wide when Calvin expresses his perspective on that because it's actually different from what he had the, the sort of thesis that he had landed on and I think that's fascinating but like I don't know when we get to you know I know and he's like pausing and he's just sucking in breath and then finally says I hung on I stayed with the boat <laughs> every single time I see that I will just like weep no matter how so we all, we all that think that's
1: most oh, yeah. most rewatchable most dysfunctional maybe not most dysfunctional but most, most gripping. gripping most gripping it's beautiful yeah. alright we gotta take Absolutely. a break we're doing t- terribly on time we're taking a break what's age the best we mentioned how they made Conrad, uh, all the subtle ways they made him depressed in the first 15 minutes, I thought was really smart. Beth's hair is perfect. And also like a good gimmick for Mary Tyler Moore, America's sweetheart, who you kind of have to de-sex her a tiny bit with that haircut. I remember okay. NBC did the same thing to poor Willow Bay when they had her as the NBC, NBA studio host in the early 90s. They gave her like the Beth haircut. That was like a big TV thing where they never... And I never... Never really understood the logic on that hair in any setting, but there always seems to be some sinister reason for it. And in this movie, it really works. I mean, it looks, just like,
3: it, it looks like she's stuck a fork in an electrical socket. You know, like, well, how, yeah. did it, how
1: did it get that way? <laughs> really rough. <laughs> uh, the the evil Mary Tyler Moore, I think, has aged fantastic. How about uh, adorable Elizabeth McGovern? Wonderful. Janine uh, Still- Pratt. Still much like Chris Ryan with the watch, still cranking it. Still cranking out IMDB (laughs) credits and and gigs all these years later.
0: Yeah. Cora on Downton crushing it. Yeah. Yeah. Looks
1: great. The swim coach's office is fantastic. (laughs) I don't know if you like really got a good look at how like just 1980 that office feels. (laughs) That everything about it, the high school. So Redford, you mentioned this earlier, Mal. He instructed the cast and crew to not interact with Hutton on or off the set.
0: Brutal. Redford
1: said, I wanted him to feel isolated. It would be up to him what to do with it, but I didn't want him to feel like he had a lot of support because the character didn't. Uh, Way to fuck with the 20-year-old uh, actor, but it worked. He won the Oscar, So I guess, it, I guess it was a good idea. Psychiatrists in movies have aged the best. I feel like as Sean said, this was like a Woody Allen gimmick, it felt like forever, or like a weird erotic thriller gimmick or something, but that <laughs> kind of goes. Um, so this wasn't enough for a rewatchable scene for me, but just this concept when he punches the swim guy, right? And then they go in the car Stillman. and yeah. his his buddy comes in and he's like, What's going on? He needs to be the three of us, what happened? Yeah. And yeah, and Hunt finally looks at he not really looking at him, he looks at him, and he goes. It hurts too much to be around you, and you fucking feel it, man. Like, and you totally get it. Like, he can never be friends with this guy in the same way. They were three people now; they're two, and he just every time he's with them, he reminds him of Buck. But I thought that was good. What else do you have for what's age the best, Mel?
0: I I think it's just the performances. I mean, they're they're just as strong on repeat viewing many many years later as as they were the first time we saw it. I think also like the musical accompaniment. That canon in D major, like that piano-heavy composition, mm. like sorrowful when it needs to be, gentle when it needs to be, but kind of like mounting and urgent when it needs to be, is really great. And I guess I this is maybe like a related one to your hair commentary. The fashion, like the sartorial vibe of this movie, is kind of shocking yeah. to revisit. S- outerwear in particular, it's basically like a chic Yellowstone with all of the outstanding suede jackets. <laughs> I just love the it.
1: wallpaper too.
0: Yes, a lot of wallpaper. Also, my, uh, delighted to see Return of the King on Conrad's desk, you know? Big reader. Got some oh, Thomas Hardy. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, Jude the Obscure, you know? Some Hunter S. Thompson. That's the book he's keeping Karen's number in.
3: That's very funny. What do you uh, have, Sean? Just, well, just my personal style is literally a perfect fusion of Cal and Burger style. You know, like, rumpled psychiatrist meets waspy accountant. You know, like, mm. that really is yeah. what I'm going for. Real house. Uh house. So, I, I really like the clothes. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the actor-to-director glow-up is something that happened a lot more after Redford did this, you know? Mm. And th- making that transition, I feel like, has aged really well, too.
1: Paved the way. I also like the... uh late 70s early 80s movies set in Chicago and Chicago suburbs. Yeah. Always fun to see that. Mm. Risky Business is another one that just feels very Illinois.
3: And you're right, this is a big a big decade for Chicago in the movies, you know, yeah. Ferris Bueller
1: and the John Hughes films and this is one of the first mm. ones. Thief. That's right. What's age the worst? So Mallory mentioned the uh canon. It's weird that it's now the wedding song you hear when you go to every wedding. Mm. But it's also the ordinary people theme, which is the most one of the most dysfunctional family movies of all time. And this is the song that we play yeah. when people get married. You well, had we decide this. Oh wow! You definitely want to think about, about that. yeah. Every time you get married,
3: you want to think about your brother oh, no. dying in a boating accident and yeah. your mother abandoning you in a moment of crisis. Very strange.
1: Oh, my God. Uh, Sutherland's Ooh. best actor snub is aged the worst. The shock value of Mary Tyler Moore as the evil mom has aged poorly. Just from the sense of she just in 1980, it was like it would be like Aniston now. I think maybe Julie Bowen. I, I mean, I'm, Julie Bowen's not as p- famous as Mary Tyler. I don't even know who it would be. That's actually an amazing question of who is our Mary Tyler Moore right now. I don't think we have one. Yeah, I think I think it was Aniston in the mid 2000s. Hmm. Um. I mentioned Timothy Hutton's 80s. I, so the Goodwill hunting kind of just stealing from this movie. It it does, does bug me a tiny bit. So, sounds
3: just, like you gotta get Matt and Ben back on the
1: show. <laughs> it's a <laughs> tiny bit. Ask I would say they just said they would just say it was uh influenced. Yeah. Steal from the greats. It's all good. Um, this is something my wife pointed out last night because she watched this and things, she enjoyed it. There are like these weird kind of how did this end up in the script? Moments that you could do a Saturn Live sketch of this movie pretty easily. Like at the end, Hutton comes out and Donald Sutherland is the last scene. Donald Sutherland's outside and Tim Hutton goes out, and Donald Sutherland's like, The leaves, it looks so. (laughs) <laughs> so much smaller back here. And it's just like, there's like seven or eight moments like that where it's just like, what language are we talking in right now? Oh, I um, think, I so think we it. just started doing that as we were watching oh it. Like, God. the chimney it's resonating. <laughs> and just like, just complete incoherent things. <laughs> but uh, oh, but it is
3: a good critique. Well, uh, I, th- I, I feel that. like we're right supposed along. to feel that he's traumatized because Beth has left. And, yeah, so he's you just know, incoherent. He's incoherent, yeah. Suitcase! <laughs>
0: Door! <laughs> oh, my uh, oh my God.
1: And then, um, <laughs> I'm just going to do this now. So 2013, Redford does an Esquire profile and claims that Pauline Kael criticized ordinary people because she had previously asked to meet with him to give him tips on improving his movies and acting. And he had refused quote. And then she got really pissed. Everything I did from then on, she just tore into me. So I don't like Redford because I know for a fact the shit he did to William Goldman, who was my friend about all the president's men. Like he just made up this complete alternative narrative of what happened with that movie. That was a lie. Mm -hmm. And Goldman is a classy guy or was a classy guy who was super wealthy and successful and was smart enough to know I'm not going to win a pissy match with Robert Redford. Mm-hmm. But it was really fucked up. And you can go read about it. And we talked about it when we did the rewatchables. I think Redford is a legitimately unreliable narrator just in general. And I do not believe the Pauline Kale thing. Mm. So I just want to say that. I like Pauline Kale.
3: I'll just say this is not in defense of Robert Redford, but Pauline Kale historically was tempted by certain figures in Hollywood, primarily Warren Beatty, to give up her work as a critic and go out to Hollywood to develop movies. So she was not necessarily completely um, disentangled from the world of movie stardom. So the idea that there was some sort of exchange between Redford and Kale at that time is very believable to me. What actually happened, I think I'm not sure we can really trust anybody about what went down there.
1: Well, there's also an incredible Clint Eastwood, Pauline Kale deep dive you can do about their relationship. Because that was the one she really feuded with. Mm-hmm. And it ended with, in uh, the terrible movie he made in the end of the 80s, it's called, like, The Deadpool. Oh, sure, yeah. A movie critic gets, a movie critic who looks like her gets savagely <laughs> murdered in Deadpool. Yeah, that was The Deadpool. And people were like, wow, this is weird. That lady looks like Pauline Kale. But it, that's, like, how dark their relationship is there's that was, a lot of good reading about that
3: that was the last dirty harry movie too right
1: yeah yeah, yeah which she she crushed dirty Harry. she mm-hmm. hated it she hated spaghetti westerns and clint at some point was like this lady has it out for me she had so much power that anything she didn't like the person almost had to get defensive about and fight back so anyway i don't believe the redford story casting what ifs oh do you have any more what's age the worst before we move on
0: uh, handing out unwrapped candy apples for Halloween. Can't do oh that
3: Oh, my anymore. God. Great call. <laughs> Excellent. Amazing Phenom- call. My phenomenal. wife has said
1: the same thing. She's like, <laughs> what disturbing. year is this? 1940? <laughs> yeah. Uh, casting what ifs. So the studio wanted Redford to play himself, or what, Redford himself to play Calvin. He declined, said the role was too predictable. This movie's so much worse if Redford's Calvin. I'm so glad he didn't play Calvin. You think so? Actually, I actually think I could yeah. have submarine the movie. Yeah, I, I, he's too famous. I think he would have overpowered it. Hmm. And I'm not sure he could have played the part either. I mean, Redford, one of the things that he was so smart about was he only played certain types of characters. Like, he, they would either be a little mysterious or he'd play the cocky hotshot or whatever. But I don't think he could have pulled off Calvin. I don't think he was... Honestly, I don't think he's a good enough actor.
3: I'm intrigued by the Hackman potential.
1: It would have been a side of Hackman we never got to see in a movie ever. It's like when we did The Firm... We talked about like drunk, corny Gene Hackman. We didn't know that that was a Hackman we wanted, but he was great in the firm. But so maybe he could have played Calvin. I don't know. I find it hard to believe he what might do have done. About?
3: He might have done a different spin than what we got.
0: Well, it, depending on, I mean, and some of these accounts are direct from Redford in, uh, you know, in that EW oral history from uh, Sarah Vilcomerson. But d- depending on kind of where you look, you see Hackman linked to both. Yeah. The the Dr. Berger part and Cal? And so Sutherland, of, right?
1: Yeah, I did a lot yeah. of recon on that. It seems like the actual right version is the Sutherland part.
0: Yeah. Okay. Interesting.
1: So Redford said, This is what he said in that oral history. I thought Richard Dreyfus should play the psychiatrist. I called him an asked. This is Dreyfus is red hot. He'd won the Oscar like a year before, jaws, close counters. Dreyfus said, I can't talk right now. I'm having a nervous breakdown. So I said, Well, I won't bother you. Hope it all works out. Then I went to Donald Sutherland. And he said, I don't want to play the psychiatrist, but I'd love to play the husband. Mm-hmm. And then Hackman apparently was cast as Calvin, dropped out, couldn't come to a financial agreement. He has a Chicago Tribune article where he says, I like the script, but couldn't come to an ar- agreement regarding the compensation. If I thought about it, I suppose I would have to have some regrets. The thing you do is not think about it, don't you think? Hmm. And then Sutherland said he was cast as the dad after Redford told him it was either you or Gene Hackman. Okay. So it seems like he was the dad. Interesting. Elizabeth Govern was attending Juilliard. They gave her special permission to be in the movie. What a fucking trump card when you're in Juilliard, right? Yeah. Where were you? Oh, I was filming the new Robert Redford movie. <laughs> how was how class?
0: Unbelievable. Redford...
1: Redford said he saw Judd Hirsch on Taxi. I love how, this is what a douchey is, sorry. Uh, quote, I saw this TV show, Taxi, that had Judd Hirsch in it, and he had this rapid-fire delivery. Like, fuck you, Robert Redford. That was like a <laughs> top 15 show, you dick. Incredible. Um, it was like the number one show on TV for two yeah. years running. I I was up there. He thought that's kind of true. And then here he... he Saw Mary Tyler Moore, he said, I had a place in Malibu, it was winter. I was sitting there looking out at the beach. I saw this lonely figure all wrapped up, walking slowly. The figure looked sad. On closer examination, I saw it was Mary Tyler Moore, America's sweetheart. I'd like half believe that story. There is a lot of stuff about it. Natalie Wood wanted to be the mom and had a long relationship with Redford. They did movies in the 60s and he cast Mary Tyler Moore and they never spoke again. And then she died on the boat.
0: Oh my goodness. With Robert
1: Wagner and Christopher Walken on board and we'll never know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ, Phil. <laughs> oh my God. That's that guy, Okay, the Joey Pants Award. M. Emmett Walsh. Is mm. he See, Craig Craig ruined that guy because he's like, nobody my age knows who any of these people are. So they're all that guys. Producer well, this, Craig. Mo- this, this
3: movie is from 1980, right? So yeah, there's, no, come on. there's a dispensation there. I would I would just say that M. Emmett Walsh is in the first ru- ring of the That Guy Hall of Fame.
1: He is. He's like, it's. he's not Babe Ruth, but he might be Lou Gehrig. Yes.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's Jimmy Fox. You know, like, yeah, he he's, definitely hit 500 home runs. Like, he's, he's automatically
1: Al Simmons, in. Al Simmons, Jimmy Fox, Lefty yeah. Grove. Yeah. Yeah, he's in there. So I have Frederick Lean. Yeah. Frederick, who was uh, the buddy that we talked about earlier. That yeah, used Lays to be the three of us, now two of us. That guy's been in a million things. He's my pick. Recognizable face. He was in Zero Dark Thirty as the wolf. He's been in a bunch of stuff. He's in you know Lost. Who he is.
0: He's the air marshal. He's in Kate's Lost? Air right. marshal and Lost. Yeah. Yeah. Craig might have even seen Lost, possibly.
1: <laughs> Very possibly. The Vincent Hanna. Give me all you got. A word. Uh, the hospital friend. She's got one scene. Karen. She mm-hmm. is dialed up. Dina Manoff.
3: Din- Manoff. Yeah. Of of soap and empty nest fame. Mm-hmm. She is.
0: What about dialed Stillman? Up. Stillman, Adam Baldwin's character. Adam
3: Baldwin, yeah, yeah, he dials it up a little. <laughs> Adam Baldwin always plays a guy you really want to punch in the head, <laughs> right? And he gets punched in this movie. He
1: does. The uh, the hospital friend though, I, I didn't. That scene I think could have worked better. I thought she was trying too hard to be manic. Deion Waiter's the word swim coach. That's my pick. Unless you guys have it. the swim coach is unbelievable.
0: Definitely, definitely him. I no uh, debate.
1: Uh, Nobody J- ever knew a swim coach could be that electric and entertaining. <laughs> so, honestly, shocked and
3: surprised. Also, a guy who looks like he's never swimmed a day in his life. Always enjoy when coaches look like they've never played
1: the sport. <laughs> recasting. It's a good point. <laughs> hey, he's like built like coach from Cheers. Uh, recasting Couch. I wouldn't touch this mm, movie. No. I'm actually going to pass.
3: Yeah. I don't know, Sean, do you have anything? Um... Gosh, I'm going down the list of thinking about people who, yeah, now no, gotta it's leave pretty it great. Place. I think I think Dreyfus in in place of Judd Hirsch absolutely works. Oh, if, my if God. Dreyfus was not having a mental breakdown, Dreyfus in
0: 1980, I know, but Judd Hirsch is so good in this movie. Like he's that performance has to be so delicate and restrained, and just in the exactly right moments, like pop and push. Mm-hmm. He is just great.
3: What about Pacino as Dr. Burger? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Where's Chris? Can we zoom him in? You're telling me your brother's on a boat and he cannot hold on. Um, do you want to do Judd Hirsch right now or do you want to wait for Apex Mountain? Yeah, let's do it. I fucking love Judd Hirsch.
0: <laughs> He's amazing. I
1: can't believe we're at the one hour, 30 minute mark of this podcast. I fucking love Judd Hirsch. I love Taxi. I love him in anything he is. I loved when he popped up on in Independence Day. My favorite Judd Hirsch movie is not this movie. It is Without a Trace, which I still think is one of the great kidnapping movies of all time. Mm. And he is the detective looking for the little boy. And he's awesome. He plays Al. And he's just awesome in that movie. And he's basically like the psychiatrist in this movie. It's the same kind of vibe. but uh, But yeah, he was... You know, he it's it's hard to explain, but Judd Hirsch was kind of a thing in the early eighties. He had like a real moment. He was the star of Taxi. It made no sense. But uh but he's I like he basically
3: like vanished from movies for a while. He made Running on Empty, the Sydney Lumet movie, great movie. And then he didn't appear in a movie until Independence Day. So from nineteen eighty eight to nineteen eighty six, Judd Hirsch was wow. not in a movie.
1: Well, he doing he he was in Dear John.
3: That's right. The TV show. But that was only a few seasons, right? How long was that show? Yeah,
1: on? he had another show, Detective in the House, which I barely remember, but he was the lead of that. The one that was the one that kind of turned him as a movie actor was uh the other way was Teachers in 1984, mm. which was an Arthur Hiller movie, your guy.
3: I like Arthur Hiller.
1: Nick Nolte, Joe Beth Williams, Judd Hirsch, and Ralph Macchio were our four leads. <laughs> mm. Oh my god. <laughs> and for whatever reason, that movie was bad and then Hollywood who cooled off on on uh, on our guy Judd. Um, okay, half fascinating research. Mm. You mentioned so the Barry Diller is the head of Paramount. The people right under him, Michael Eisner, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and they did not like ordinary people, but Barry Diller liked it, so they made it, which is always weird. And then Katzenberg and and Eisner probably at some point were like, oh, yeah, ordinary are people, we loved it. We, you know, <laughs> yeah. but there's a lot of sure. documented evidence. This was
3: it. like when um, when we were discussing whether or not to do the watch at the beginning of the ringer. And me and Mal were like, this is a terrible idea. We don't want Chris and Andy back. And Bill was like, Listen. no,
1: no, no. I, was I like, love no, it. I see something in those guys. And seven years later, they're still cranking it out. So they did film the uh, the big Donald Sutherland scene at the end again. Now we Stitched get to Redford, an unreliable narrator, Robert Redford. I'll give you the two versions. <laughs> Redford, right. he says, he says he got so wired up for it. When the moment came, he really let loose. I felt maybe it was too much. When the film was finished, I felt like it was too much. Here's where Donald is great. I said, <laughs> Donald, I want you to look at this. We looked at the scene together and he said, you're absolutely right. Can I do it again? <laughs> so we went back to the location and shot that moment and recut it into the film.
3: Not only that, Robert, he said, but you are one of the finest men I've ever Robert, known.
1: <laughs> God damn, you're handsome. I'm happy to recut this. Oh Donald Sutherland, they read him this Redford quote, and here's his quote back. Bless his heart, no.
0: Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> <That> <laughs>
1: What happened was we were sitting there looking at rushes, all of us, and I was humiliated by myself. They were all happy with it. The day after, I said, guys, I've really screwed you. I've done the stupid old actor's bullshit thing. Out of context, it was well-performed, but it was wrong. Three months after we stopped shooting, Redford phoned me and said, I think you were right. Can we do it again? I said, absolutely. Redford stood in for Mary because she wasn't there. I'm choosing to believe Donald Sutherland's... (laughs) Depiction of the events because as we know, Robert Redford, unreliable narrator. Sean? I think it's safe to assume that
3: Donald Sutherland is also quite self-regarding. So it's possible that this has just entered the vortex of masculine know it all bullshit, something I know a lot about. And uh no one will ever know the truth,
1: honestly. This is why I will never have a great Land oral history because I'll end up killing everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, including me and Mallory for no reason. Taking no, stray guys, is sitting right next you guys to me. Um Ordinary People on the list of most banned books in school libraries. Hmm. Yeah, that's so strange. It was the 52nd most challenged book in schools and libraries from 1999, narrowly beating out number 53, American Psycho. It's kind of the 13 Reasons
3: Why of its time, right? It's sort of like suicidal ideation and all the depression and all these things that they're trying to shield teenagers from as they're going through that difficult time of their life.
1: 13 Reasons Why Was an Irresponsible Show. Okay. Um, let's take a break and then we'll do Apex Mountain. Apex Mountain, Redford. Mm. I actually think yes. I think this is it. He's still one of the four most bankable actors. He's at the peak of his handsome powers and he just directed an Oscar winner. He won best director and best actor and he fucking took down Scorsese. Yeah. I'm going to say yes.
3: The Sundance Institute was formed in 1981, shortly after he won his first Oscar
0: oh, for wow. Best Director. So this is like the peak of his power.
1: Damn. Yeah. Timothy Hutton, I would probably say yes. Because especially, maybe you say Taps might be Taps. I mean, he won
3: the Oscar. So yeah, I feel like that's the, that, clo- that closes the deal.
1: Mary Tyler Moore, no way. No. Mary, Sean, you ever do the thing like people from the way past that preceded you? But you're like, damn, that lady was attractive. Like going way back. You mean like
3: just like- From like the
1: 40s, 50s, Like Cleopatra? 60s. Like what are we talking about here? <laughs> yeah, we can go back to Cleopatra.
3: <laughs> like Rita, Rita Hayworth. Yeah, Cleopatra was a dime.
1: Um, Helen of Troy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mary Tyler Moore in the Dick Van Dyke Show lights oh, out. Oh, gorgeous Laura Petrie lights she was, out. She was Laura Petrie was lights out. Yeah, no. Of I would still say the of uh, one seed for uh, TV sitcom. I Housewives. enjoy that question. Were people
3: hot in the fifties and sixties? Yes, they absolutely <laughs> well, were.
1: Sometimes you know the hairdos get a little weird in some
3: decades. Oh, God. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not brunettes. Not really my thing. If I'm being honest, no. No, no shot to brunettes, Mal. I'm sorry, but like we know you uh, love you,
0: a redhead, Sean. I love. Okay. I love a redhead,
3: but but yeah. I mean, it's Mary Tyler Moore was psycho. she was so cute. And so, like, charming and smart. And she just kind of was like the ultimate gravitational pull. Yeah. Who
1: didn't love Mary Tyler (laughs) Moore? Married to Grant Tinker, who funded The White Shadow, my favorite show of all time. Hmm. The Oscars, Apex Mountain, 1981. Ooh. Johnny Carson, Hmm. A Slew of Stars, Redford wins for Best Director. We have one of the most controversial Oscars we've ever had. I would personally say 1994, I think, is Apex Mountain. Mm.
0: Because
1: that was Pulp Fiction, Forrest Gump, Shawshank, and Letterman with the Uma Oprah. I think that was the most memorable Oscars we've ever had. But from like an audience kind of impact standpoint, you might argue 1980.
3: It's it's, it's hard to get away from 75 with Godfather, Chinatown, conversation.
1: Mm. I'm talking about the telecast. I'm not talking about like what what were the best movies that won? Yeah, I'm I mean... Like, but, as an actual telecast, okay. he, 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 he was the, the ho- Oscars ever more potent bigger? I'm just going to read you the
3: hosts, the four hosts of the Academy Awards in 1975. You ready for this? Yeah. Bob Hope, of course, yeah. hosted many times, staple of the Oscars. Shirley MacLaine, Sammy Davis Jr. And, and Chris and Ryan. And Frank Sinatra were the hosts wow. of the Academy <laughs> That's Awards. That's pretty good. Now... So, you know, and this was true all throughout the 70s and 80s. There were Oscars that were hosted by like Goldie Hawn and Chevy Chase together. You know, like that. The game used to be different, man. It used to be a big deal. This is a good one, though. 81 was a really good one.
1: Now Sean's beloved Oscars is dying a slow death, much like Beth and Calvin's marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Donald Sutherland... You could talk me into this for Apex Mountain for him. I think it's the best movie he's ever been in. He's a pretty recognizable dude from Animal House and Invasion of the Body Snatchers and those kind of things. He definitely fills some sort of spot in the lead, in leading man rankings. I don't I, know. I, I've just... He's given so birth to Jack Bauer. Jack is now his <laughs> I was, son. I was going to
0: say, isn't his apex mountain when everyone Jack is Bauer's Googling coming? Kiefer Sutherland at the beginning of 24 and realizes that Donald is his father? Does the, does the Oscar slide help or hurt the case? Because on the one hand, you could say there's like a diminishment there. But on the other hand, it mm. like kind of really keeps him active at this moment in time in the public debate, which might be a, a boon, actually, to the case.
3: Yeah. I just for personal reasons, his his performance is X and JFK is is he's sitting on top of the mountain there. That's just my favorite. I agree
1: I love him in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's <gasps> <laughs> a good one. Craig and Dylan had no idea what that just was. <laughs> Judd Hirsch, fucking hey yes. He's on taxi. He's in ordinary people. Like, goddamn, he's just standing there having a Gatorade on Apex Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> I love that a
3: guy who looks, talks, and acts like Judd Hirsch could be the most important guy in Hollywood for about 12 months. It's crazy.
1: <laughs> uh, Elizabeth McGovern, no. No. But she did win our hearts. How about the name Buck? <sighs> this is this Apex now- Mountain for the name Buck? Because know, we also have win. Buck Henry. Yeah. That's Buck all Showalter
0: got. got the Orioles back to postseason oh, glory. That's Mets
1: manager <laughs> Buck Showalter in 2023,
0: <laughs> uh, when the Mets were world Apex,
1: champions. That. Also, rookie Magic Johnson, the Lakers. His nickname is Young Buck. Oh, Craig says Uncle Buck. That's interesting. How about solid, Bucky solid Barnes?
0: One. Bucky Barnes, Buck from from the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe. Ever heard of it? You know, uh,
1: mm-hmm. Yankee fans just say Bucky Dent 1978. They can fuck off. <laughs> is it Apex Mountain for the name Ward? <laughs> or is that that's got to be Leave It yeah. to Beaver, right? I was Ward, say Cleaver? Ward
3: Cleaver, yeah, Ward Cleaver. How
1: about Buck and Ward in the same movie? I'm going to say Apex Man. Uh, intense Chicago movies. I do feel like this is becoming Apex Mountain. We're not there yet, but we have Bad Boys and Risky Business coming. We just had Thief. We had Ordinary People. We're in like a four-year intense Chicago movie. Okay, Apex. Fucked up family movies. Was this Apex Mountain?
0: No, no. Pains me okay. to say, but no.
1: All right. Yeah. We're not going to spoil that one. <laughs> Picky <and> Nits. <laughs> this is dark. But it is it is a gimmick in movies like this. The, the families that keep the dead child's room completely intact so we can have the scene where we go in there. I, I think we're good with that gimmick. Mm-hmm. I just think we're good. I think we should retire. I think it's effective. It worked. Kudos to the gimmick, but we're good.
3: What about in real life? You think families that have kept I have their No comment dead, dead, on real life okay, stuff. Okay. No, no.
1: I'm just saying it as a movie gimmick of 28-minute mark, somebody sitting on the bed, we're good. We don't need to see that again. I'm with you. This is from my wife. So the brother was an amazing swimmer with tons of trophies, and he and he was the one that drowned? Like what about what about the swimming, like Wow. Where that's did this part of the
0: tragedy in? of it, though. My wife was right? really
1: upset about this. So I'm like, they were. we don't know how long they were out there. We got in an argument. This is the only time we argued during the whole movie. I They have been
3: out there for no, hours. No, no, no. no, she's right. Cancel ordinary people. <laughs> <laughs> this shit is bunk. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's like Conrad's lied about how bunk never took anything seriously, right? Like, he just didn't think that anything bad could happen. Yeah. And then it did.
3: Your wife's right, a this... smart lady, man. I don't know. I wouldn't argue with her on this. I think she's onto
1: something. <laughs> this is my big one. So, Beth wakes up middle of the night. Rolls over. Conrad's not there. Goes downstairs. Big speech that they have to refilm. Leaves. Goes, quietly puts up a suitcase. I have two picky nits. One is the, the kind of weird seizure thing she does. I actually think it's kind of bad acting. We could mm-hmm. have potentially put that in the uh, the Vincent Hano Award. Packs the suitcase. Cab comes. Yeah. There's no internet, 1980. Where the fuck was she going? What, did she just show up at the airport with suitcases and was like a uh, one-way ticket to Houston?
0: Yeah, maybe went right to a travel agent, you know? It was Hung four out in the, at the airport.
3: What if she well, went over to- the sun
0: is up when she departs, right?
3: She could have gone
1: over to Ward's house.
0: <laughs> See, that's where she was going. <laughs> she was going to Ward's in, in Houston, down so to Houston. So she's packing
1: the suitcase, just take me to the airport. I'm just going to buy a ticket at the airport.
0: yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Mal, no. have you ever had a moment like that where you were just like, "Fuck it, I
3: gotta just get in the car and drive"?
0: No, I can't leave Halo. <laughs> Everyone else is free to go, but I'll be staying here.
1: <laughs> um, my, I have a very small pick and pay. Adam Baldwin, just not not a swimmer's body, too beefy. Yeah, like he's too strong. Like put him on the football team. Swimmers are like tall and lanky. What are you going to fucking swim? Tim Hutton though, very well cast. Tim very, Hunt, great, very believable, great swimmer, swimmer body. Yeah. yeah. Any other uh, nitpicks for either of you?
0: Um, you know, can you not save French toast? <laughs> can Is it not, canceled? Can you not save French toast? You can't just like heat it up in the oven. Oh, save it. it. <laughs> yeah. Can you not save French <laughs> toast? <laughs> that, like Beth takes it away and puts it down at the disposal. That was the so, most
1: upset my it. wife was in the whole movie. She's <laughs> like, what? <laughs> French toast. I could have that later. Heats up
0: perfectly. It Heats up perfectly. <laughs> eats up perfectly.
1: Um, now, yeah, you always tough.
3: have two or three in the categories that are elite. <laughs> that's, that, that's one of them. Um, I, I'm trying to wrap my head around the psychology of Beth. So Beth has obviously a very <laughs> uptight mom who has instilled in her this like distancing lack of emotion that is infecting her kids. Yeah. Beth also has a really... That, cheery father you know yeah. who just loves taking photos he's just all about photo combos you know he's like you over here and you over here and this is going to be great and Beth also just clearly wants to fuck her son Buck like can we just say it
0: yes yeah like, in the like, in the flashback particularly when he's talking about like getting drunk and cutting school and she's just looking up at him adoringly with the yeah I never that considered
1: and that eyes. until the yeah. Pauline Kale review that rereading that last thing and I was like ah oh, yeah that why is she so flirty with Buck it's weird uh, yeah, it's weird. But like, so
3: we're to believe that she's literally choosing like her sexual desire for her dead son over her existing son who survived. Like that's, I I literally there are times when I'm watching the movie where I'm like, this is hard to accept as a storytelling choice that a mother could do this. And I think that that's one of the reasons why the movie is effective. But it's also one of the reasons why the movie like sticks in my craw.
0: Yeah, but sounds I, like she, she has a lot to unpack with Dr. Berger.
1: Maybe completely disagree. Maybe. And this goes back to what I said at the beginning. She's a fucking monster. Okay, she's a monster. You have to see her as a monster. And Judith that's how Guest it makes doesn't sense. see her that way, though.
3: She doesn't well, she's see that a monster. she she sees her as like an unfinished character. She talked about this in an interview, which I thought was a really interesting way of describing her because you don't see the you don't see the world through her eyes, like Mal said in the book. And so there's less information about her than there is about everybody else because she doesn't talk about how she's feeling except for the meltdown on poor Ward. And so, like, we don't Lord. really get a sense. Never of, playing golf again. I know, poor bastard. <laughs> uh, it's a, it's yeah. like an interesting. It's a really good storytelling choice that makes the movie stand out. But it's also one where every time I watch this movie, I'm like, what the "Fuck is this lady's problem?"
1: Tim Hutton is in pain. Help him out. That swimming pool you're so proud of. And where'd you get those covers for your three woods? <laughs> um, could this be remade as a oh, ten God. episode? Ne- could this be remade as a ten episode Netflix show? Definitely, it's not Netflix. It's more like HBO Max or yeah, yeah. We've seen. I mean, Showtime. In Treatment is a version of this show, right? Yeah,
0: for sure. This would actually be a great TV show.
1: Probably. Answerable questions. Is mm-hmm. there a better movie? Is this a better movie with Gene Hackman as the dad? Do You have to answer yes or no. No, but I want to see it. No, I, I, I'm with Sean. No, but I want to see it. Um, what college did Conrad? end up attending. Do you think he overlapped with Joel Goodson at University of Illinois?
0: <laughs> uh, I think Conrad w- goes out of state.
3: It feels like Michigan State to me. He gets yeah, he out. Yeah, he kept
0: talking about the Michigan State tickets. Maybe he was interested in Michigan State. Stayed in the Big Ten, though, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: My wife said he felt more like a Amherst Williams type. Really good school. Could be.
0: Could see that. Not a
1: high class number and, and just... Kind of a sad location where it's just kind of 20 degrees every day. And he's just going to swim practice. I, I will be that.
3: warding all people off of that experience until the day that I die. Having had a cold weather experience, I have a little yeah. sister who's a freshman in college. And she was like, I'm going to go to New Hampshire. And I was like, what, the fuck?
1: what are you? And she's like, no, actually, I'm going to go to Rhode Island. I'm like, what? No, just south. Go further south. I mean, we're taping this on a Friday and they're getting three feet of snow this weekend. Yeah. Oh, well. Mallory, this is a two-part question okay beth ends up in houston mm-hmm. does she start dating her golf her golf pro within the next nine months and is that <sighs> golf pro a male or a female
0: boy um boy wow yeah i think i think beth is in a relationship again quickly very quickly like, like remarried but, right away yeah it needs to kind of rebuild needs to craft anew that semblance of a, of a family life. But I don't think, I don't think anyone from the, from the links are involved. I think she wants to keep that separate, but I had an unanswerable question about Beth's golf game. What do you think Beth's handicap is?
1: I was going to ask this too. They, they were very <laughs> careful of not showing her swing. She's of golf
0: obsessed bug. with golf. Maybe our yeah. next vacation is strictly golf. That's the thing she says.
1: Loves it. They only showed her putt. The putting looked okay we never got to see her swinging iron or something but yeah it seemed like Beth was probably um, I would say probably like a 12-13 handicap I was gonna say a 10 hmm. yeah hmm. now this question is also for you before Calvin and Beth broke up what was the sex life like
0: I'm so glad you asked this I have this on my list too I, I had phrased it how often you Calvin and Beth, fuck before things devolved, but you know, the spirit is the same because they get they, a little frisky at yeah, the top. Oh, yes, when they come back from the play that night, they definitely have sex for sure. And it's like, oh, they're keeping it fresh, good for them. And he then got, there's that a kind gleam in his eye, of, yeah. There's that like shy way later that Cal says to Dr. Berger that there's like no issue there when it comes to Beth's affection for him. Like, I think that. Their sex life is probably one of the many ways that they attempt to like convince each other that they still have something between them. That's how I feel about their sex life, but good for them. Some people don't even do that.
1: We accomplished my goal, which was to make Sean uncomfortable on the Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) great job on that segment, guys. (laughs) What piece of memorabilia would you want from this movie? Uh, This is an easy answer for me. I love Timothy Hutton's jacket.
0: Which one? He's got a couple great the, ones. The one in the, the last like, hour of
1: the movies. Yeah. Sheerling, Great yeah. jacket. I would really wear that good. now. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Nice that's one. a really good one. I would go with some 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 school merch. You know, some Lake Forest Scouts oh. uh, swim team merch. They've got the nice varsity jackets, the track suits. That's my, my wife pick. said
1: that. My yeah. wife wanted the swim the swim. It's a pull-overs. good color scheme. Yeah, it's good.
3: We don't actually see it, but I'd, I'd just like to get a crack at Ward's pool. You know, that he's so proud of. <laughs>
2: Oh, uh,
1: who's had more chuckles during a two hour discussion of ordinary people than us? Nobody. Uh who won the movie?
0: This was hard. This is a really, really hard.
1: Really hard. One. I, I gotta say, like top top five or six hardest since we've done the pod. This is the two hundred and twenty first movie that we've done. And this is, I think, top five hardest.
3: I always go with the same thing every time. I'm so predictable in this category. I know. Sean's gonna say Redford.
1: Did you direct this movie? It,
3: would it have happened without you? Did you win Best Director and Best Picture? And you're also <laughs> the biggest movie star on the planet? Gosh. Yeah, that's
0: fair. Is there that's a case a for case. anyone else? <laughs> it's tough to argue with that. I think you could make a shared case for Hirsch and Hutton and their scenes together, which I just think are like so captivating and compelling. They, they really are. But that's a bit of a I, cheat.
1: I think Sutherland wins the actual movie. Hmm. And I think Redford wins... Everything that comes from the movie,
3: Robert Redford. Robert Redford has been win, winning life for fifty consecutive years.
0: Yeah, it's a good pick. Even, Even though I think right.
3: the, I do like that, you should subtitle this episode "Ordinary People: Goldman's Revenge." I feel like you settled the score here for 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 your friend.
1: <laughs> Listen, all this stuff is documented. Just I, go I mean, go Google Robert Redford. There's nice. been a lot written about him over the years, and unreliable narrators, say the least. But, um. I think Sutherland wins the movie. I, I w- went into it thinking it was Hutton, and I left it thinking that he had the key performance. And honestly, Mary Tyler Moore had a chance until she had the seizure in the in the room when she was packing. I just felt like that. It's funny that Redford was like, we got to redo that Donald Sutherland scene, but nobody wanted to redo the weird seizure Mary Tyler Moore had. Like, How bad could Sutherland have been if they kept the Mary Tyler Moore thing in?
3: It's a good call. I mean,
1: uh, if I'm being like
3: ungenerous here, Mary Tyler Moore is a TV actor. And this is a really like bracing part because it's so against yeah. type. But Donald Sutherland is a very skilled film actor. And it's a different style. It's a different tone. And I to me, they're not in the same class when it comes even to the performances in this
1: movie. I agree. I was actually, I almost had recasting couch. I almost had a couple Beth choices, but... Hmm. I actually think Mary Tyler Moore is perfect for that part. For yeah, she's great. The shock value of it combined with the hair and yeah, yeah. I, I, agree. D- I don't really need a lot from Beth because she's supposed to be a wall. I'm yeah, not. There's
0: something inaccessible about her.
1: Yeah. yeah. Right. So we don't need like I don't know. I'm trying to think. Somebody from would have been somebody around her age range. It
3: would have been like Ellen Burstyn. That would have or been Shirley a, yeah, or Shirley MacLaine. Or Jenna yeah. Rollins or any of the people that were nominated yeah. in that in that time. Yeah.
1: All right. That's it for Ordinary People. This was produced by a horrified Craig Horlbeck. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Fucked Up Family February. We have four more movies coming. We're not going to tell you what those movies are, but there's going to be some other guests.
3: I had one question for you guys, a very stupid random picking nit.
1: Yeah. Ooh. I don't even know if it's a picking knit. I just it's it's very, very stupid. How do were any of you on a swim team in high school or college? I had
0: this as what's age the worst, actually. Didn't mention it. But the swim idea team? of like swim, swim team is like a central extracurricular. Wasn't our guy CR a swimmer though? He, he was. Might, well, he oh, might really? reject this question. He was. A, yeah. why was
1: it why was it so important and like central to the family that was on the swim team? And two. How do swim coaches coach? Do they do what that? Do they just stand on the side and scream at you as you swim? That's how you coach.
3: Yeah, it's like the Tibbs method, very similar style. (laughs) Just minutes, rack up minutes. I didn't. He just. What's that guy's name? M. -M Emmett. Something. Emmett Walsh.
2: Yeah.
1: He just.
3: I was like, what is his strategy? He just yells at all the kids (laughs) to go faster. That's
1: it. I think the swim team, the two things is yeah, go faster, and you're putting on a little weight. Be careful. I think are the two ways. You're the swim team guy, right? You look a little heavy in the speedo today. Yeah. Um, on the swim team point, this is a good nit- nitpick. How long was the swim season? Like yeah, normally in high swimming. school, yeah. Normally in high school, you move just move from one sport to another. The sports are three months. See, it was in swim practice for months before the meet. So it was like a year round sport in Lake, Lake Forest, Illinois. I don't I think mean, we had a
0: they got that indoor pool, you know. Also, the stands are
1: packed for that swim meet. Did anybody go to a swim meet? That was the thing that that
0: really struck me, that this is like the thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but that's that's 1980, though. Craig, take everything out of your life that you enjoy right now and ask yourself if you would end up going to a swim meet. (laughs) Remove the internet cable... Sports, uh, everything you like, just take, just remove it. Be like, oh, that swim meet's looking it's good. Twenty degrees out, and there's a swim meet indoors. Yeah. Oh, are we playing Aurora tonight?
0: I'm gonna like, oh. go. Swim meets <laughs> and McDonald's. Those were like the happening places to be. All the kids yeah. come through like singing at the McDonald's, right? Yeah.
1: People would just get in a car and drive around for like four hours. That would be like Friday night. Feel like let's get in a car.
3: This is a great spinoff pod. What what what, what we did when we had nothing to do. <laughs> and how that will do. never happen again
1: <laughs> it's funny because th- this blizzard in the east coast the blizzard in 78 where i was in brookline for three weeks and we couldn't go anywhere and it was just building snow tunnels in the front yard there was like what are we gonna do it's nothing it just some, you read books i had two, would be on tiktok
3: i just had two friends text me in the last three hours on the east coast who are like hey i don't know if you have any plans this weekend but um i'm gonna be snowed in so if you have some time let's catch up (laughs) by a phone (laughs) (laughs) it's like there's like that's this is the only time when you're like
1: i have nothing i can do with my life Mm. all right that's it for ordinary people we will see you next week on fucked up family february here on the rewatch thanks guys